Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So thank you for uh, for joining this conversation with me. The first thing that I wanted to ask you was about your convo with Lex Friedman. Um, in prep for this conversation, I watched a bunch of your stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I felt most frustrated in was watching you guys work through the R word, N word sort of thing. And I didn't get to hear, <laughs> I didn't get to hear what you thought. I felt like that was a section of it where you mostly got chastised. And I think there is an interesting conversation around your philosophy of language, which words you incorporate and use, which ones you don't, which ones you allow in your community. Um, so wanted to reopen that conversation and ask you why yes, R word, why no N word. And if, is there something underpinning that? I think that like the general philosophy is, um, Try not to cast too wide a net is essentially how it works. So if I'm making fun of somebody for a particular trait or using an insult against somebody, you want the thing itself to be pretty bad. Um, Otherwise, you end up casting too wide a net. So for instance, probably not okay to make fun of somebody's body, like calling somebody fat, because you might have like cool fans that are fat, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it okay to make fun of somebody for being like a Nazi or racist? Probably because those are bad traits. And even if you have a fan that is a Nazi or racist, it's okay for them to feel bad about being a racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the broad overarching, I guess, philosophy. And then we try to like stay somewhere within those lines, but we're not perfect. We've been looking for a replacement for the R word, <laughs> um, but it's a, that's a hard one, man. I haven't, fa- haven't found anything good to replace it yet. Um, I, I feel like retarded as a word has fallen out of like colloquial use uh, mm-hmm. or, or not colloquial use. It's fallen out of like medical use. I don't think I've ever heard anybody refer to like children even as like mentally retarded. I think it's usually like developmentally dis- um, developmentally delayed, or you'll be talking about a particular ADHD or something like that. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't. Ha- it's not like one of those words I hear and it's like, oh my god, that's so horrible. Um, but I, I mean, it's, it'd probably be good to not say it, but I just haven't found a worthy replacement for it yet. I guess. Yeah, you need you need something that stings uh, yeah. because that's kind of the point. This is this is where I was in the conversation listening. Is that it feels like in that conversation potentially on the internet as a society, we've gotten very stuck on the syllables and the sound of the word itself and lost what we're trying to signify in there. And I'm wondering, like, so say we place, replace the word retarded with imbecilic or moronic or stupid. Is it not another two, three, four, five years before those words are now problematic words that need to be removed? Because what we haven't done is remove this class of insult, which is saying, I do not respect you because you are behaving in a way that I deem stupid or something like that. And I see this, I don't know if it's a like revolving door of words that need to be replaced, if there's a problem with that or if, if there's not. Yeah, it's almost like a euphemistic treadmill kind of. Um, mm-hmm. I, that, I mean, I, I posed that question to Lex, but he felt pretty confident that that wouldn't happen. But mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I kind of, I, yeah, it's hard. I, there, there are some genuine slurs or words or whatever that we probably shouldn't use just because it doesn't make sense to so like racial slurs or maybe like really sexist slurs i can understand that when it comes to calling people stupid or dumb um sometimes i have a hard time telling like do people really want to get rid of the word like retarded because of developmentally uh, delayed people or do people want to just like tone down like how mean everybody is altogether because if it's the Mm -hmm. former then okay but if it's the latter then yeah i think we are on a road where it's like well calling somebody stupid or an imbecile 
Um, I mean, like, is that really fair? This person was from a disadvantaged community. Like, if you call a person of color an imbecile as a white person, like, are you taking advantage of your systemic privilege to punch down? Like, I, I just, I don't know where that where that road goes, I guess. And mm. also, at the end of the day, I do like to frame these things. I think it's always good to take a step back and kind of like on the macro level, figure out what we're talking about. Um, I have opinions on like language and, and words we should or shouldn't use, uh, but they're not, I don't have like huge, strong, like leanings towards like, or, or, or it's, there's not a lot of gravity behind those decisions. Like if somebody says words that I don't like, I don't usually care that much. I'm not here to like police people's language or anything. Um, I like to make people aware of things. If you say certain words, they're going to have certain impacts and some people may not feel good about it. I'm not necessarily saying you should or shouldn't use those words, but it's something you should at the very least have a realistic uh, comprehension of. So um, as long as somebody has the awareness, that's good enough for me. And then I kind of I have my values and I try to impart those on other people. But yeah, it's at the end of the day, uh, there are so many more interesting things to talk about than like, what word are you using? It's not OK. You know, I think people get too obsessed on those on the syllables, like you said. Sure. One of the I guess the personal reactions that I have, which I, I recognize as my own, is I, I get afraid culturally when it seems like perhaps this is a, a reaction to woke culture, when it seems like the most offended group of people or party is the one who was able to, you know, dictate the terms of conversation or something like that. And I felt that with terms like Latinx or, uh, and then I get fearful of that with terms like retarded. My heart wants to be kind and doesn't want to upset people if I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. But I, I am probably slower to change my language because I am so distrustful of the good faith of the whatever internet community listening. And I'm curious if that comes up for you as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't care about the, um, I, I try to never care about the group of people that are like, we're going to come police the language. I usually just go by feedback from others, uh, Mm. that are usually personally affected. So, you know, there are certain slurs that might be relevant to gay people. Like, I'm curious, like how gay people feel about those particular things. And then soliciting their feedback is important or how minorities of, of all sorts of different groups might feel about certain words. I think that's the feedback that I'm most concerned of. Um, there's this kind of like class of white people that are very, very, very concerned with trying to be very particular about the words we can or cannot use. And I find that a lot of minority groups just don't care. Um, I don't think I've ever met a Hispanic person in my entire life that has ever endorsed uh, Latinx or yeah, like yeah. any variation <laughs> thereof. I know they're trying to make like Latina work or whatever, but even that, that's like some AOC stuff. I, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, it's just, it's not, um, I'm going to use this phrase a lot. And I make this sound a little suspect, but it's just not very interesting to me. Mm. Um, like figuring out why people have the views they do about large groups of people and then how people treat them differently based on those views those those conversations are really interesting to me but like figuring out like how we can all sit in a you know circle like ejaculating on each other trying to woke scold each other harder than the other person is just like it's very 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 i don't care there there are some conversations that can be kind of interesting to have but people fixate so hard on that to where that becomes like the focal point when in the reality that's like a very peripheral subject that's just kind of like well maybe we can chat about this for a second you know yeah Got it. So, well, in that case, let's move on to something else. This is a mm-hmm. curiosity of mine is uh, I'd watch a lot of your stuff. I enjoyed it tremendously. And I see what you're doing as probably, well, I don't know. I'm curious. I, I see it as more powerful than I think a lot of society does. I think streaming and streamers are still, I mean, you've got your blue hair right now. It seems perhaps not serious to sure. some To be people. clear. I did this for charity, okay? I did it for charity, okay? For everybody watching, okay? If you felt, if you thought I was a loser because I dyed my hair blue, it was to get video games to sick, dying kids in hospitals, okay? So I hope you feel like shit for judging me for it, okay? I did not know that. That's awesome. I I think that's that's great. but the the general, you know, you're playing Factorio, you're you're doing video games, you're having conversations. Sometimes it gets into screaming matches. 
I see what you're doing as potentially shaving off a chunk of the influence that mainstream NBC or that kind of stuff would have in the political arena and shifting it over to you and your audience. When I've seen your shorts, I have found myself doing what a lot of people do, which is like sometimes repeating your views without even critically thinking about them, I'm embarrassed to say, because you have become, for me, a trusted perspective and tastemaker. I'm curious if you see what you're doing at all like that, or if it's just, you know, this fun thing that you do, it pays the bills, you get to play video games, have interesting conversations. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely taken a lot more seriously over the past year in terms of feeling like I have some kind of like, uh, I've, I've got a talent for it, I would say, I would hope. Um, and I've got like, a, um, I think I have like a responsibility, a social one to, to, you know, impart what I feel is important onto the people listening to me. Uh, that thing that you talk about is, I, I'd say it's disappointing, but it's true. At the end of the day, what I'd really want is for people to bite my thought process. I want mm -hmm. people to take like my critical analysis and then use that application to approach different things. I don't care if you agree with me or not. I really don't care what your opinions are at all. Just as long as you're critically evaluating them, that's the important thing to me. But realistically, at the end of the day, a lot of people are just going to grab your top level opinion about something and run with it, which I mean, hey, I think my opinion is better than anybody else's, obviously, because it's my opinion. So I guess I'm not too bothered by that. But yeah, I, I hope at the end of the day, like, I, people are capable of disagreeing with each other, disagreeing with me, and then having like a good factual uh, foundation by which to build those disagreements. It's more important than the opinions themselves, I think. Mm. Do you think that, I guess it used to be Twitch, now it's become YouTube streaming. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I see in there is that it seems like sometimes the structure of the conversations that occur here, where it is, one, your opinions are sometimes broadcast eight, 10 hours a day. So your entire thought process is made public, which can sometimes make, if you're in a debate, moving back from a position into which you've dug your heels or someone else has dug their heels, very difficult to do because of the ego blow that it takes. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the debates that I've seen have devolved very quickly into what seems like bad faith arguments. And then even worse, the term bad faith gets thrown around as a casual insult yeah. rather than like a, a genuine exploration of are we both seeking truth? And I'm um, I do see what you're doing as being a very powerful force for shaping like political narrative going forward. I'm curious if you think that the space of streaming is well set up, not well set up, uh, and if, if you're aware of some of what those or agree that some of those structural impediments to like good conversation might be. Um, I, I, I think that I think everything is what you make it. I, mm -hmm. I used to be. Um, I used to think that certain formats favored certain types of ideas or that certain, um, even certain, like, I guess forms of discourse favored certain types of ideas. Like the, the talking points would always be in the past for leftists or liberals or whatever. We'd always say, or progressives, we'd always say, well, explaining, uh, you know, racist power structures and all this, that's very, very, very complicated. And, you know, if the other side just wants to say, uh, you know, uh, minimum wage bad or, or, um, or, or, you know, uh, totally close border good, blah, blah, and then make up some dumb reason that it's impossible to fight that type of rhetoric because they can be so simple and, and they don't care about the facts and blah, 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 blah. And I believe that for a long time, probably for like the last 10 years, or, or at least from 2016 to 2022, that, that was kind of like how I felt, that I had to do a lot more work putting together a, a truthful opinion to counteract what I saw as an, an unfactual opinion. Mm -hmm. But I think the reality is that I think people on the left for a long time have thought like, well, we're correct. So we don't really have to do any work in making our stuff presentable because we're right. And, you know, if you disagree, well, you're wrong and you should be chastised for it. And we're going to condescend to you. We're going to make you feel dumb. And I think that approach has just failed to serve, uh, you know, that that the left leaning ideology. I think the right has done a really good job at making their stuff entertaining, making it palatable, uh, making it cool and hip. And they're really good at getting their talking points across in a way that is just so much fun to watch. And I, I think that people on the left have abdicated that. I'm trying to 
yeah, I'm trying to shift the focus back on that. So rather than using the excuse of like, oh, well, it's so hard to counter their stuff because, you know, a, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth's even got its pants on. Rather than having that thought process, I'm usually just thinking like, what are the snappiest, wittiest analogies? What's the quickest way I can make somebody understand a relatively complicated topic? Like, how can I get these, these ideas to be as digestible as possible? And then if somebody wants to fight me on the substance, well, then we can go back to my home and we can go through the studies and the data and all of that. But in the meantime, I need to make my ideas as presentable as possible so that I can persuade any random person on the street that I feel like I'm correct on an issue. What do you think the, the you mentioned witty, snappy, what underlies what makes you more persuasive to a person on the street? Because I mean, I feel like I have some idea, but I'm curious what you would what you would say the most important things are. And one that you didn't say is not coming across as like other in the mm -hmm. other tribe, which I see people do all the time. They like, they draw the battle lines first and then they start trying to persuade. And at that point, it seems like the battle is lost. Yeah, I think that the first thing you have to do is you have to step inside somebody's bubble and you have to acknowledge their grievance or their complaint. Mm. Um, people have a really hard time understanding this. Um, like emotions might be irrational, People's thoughts might be irrational, but irrational does not mean random, okay? Every irrational thought or feeling or emotion comes from a place, right? If you believe in a universe with guiding principles, if you believe in causality, then something that is happening is being caused by something else. It might appear random, but randomness insofar as our emotional states doesn't exist, right? Even a trauma response that might be irrational was caused by a traumatic event. So the first thing I try to do is like, if you feel like you hate all Hispanic people because they're taking jobs from you or whatever, right? That probably stems from some sort of economic anxiety. Probably, there's probably something there because like rich people don't feel this way, right? If you're making 250,000 a year, you're not complaining about people crossing the border, right? Unless you're, you're too into politics. <laughs> um, so you, so if there's economic anxiety, I think you have to start with recognizing like, I understand why you feel this way. I understand that there are these problems and these problems are real. Now, I don't think it's for the reason that you say they are, but I, I understand, you know, what those problems are. And then we can kind of talk around those problems. I think that the mistake that people run into on the left, and there's a huge disconnect, is somebody will make a statement. They'll say something like, um, they'll, they'll say something like, Hispanics are uh, stealing our jobs. Or actually, here, I'll, I'll, I'll use a left-leaning example so I don't come off as hyper-partisan, right? Um, somebody, on the, somebody on the left will say something like, cops are indiscriminately killing black people. And then somebody on the right will go, um, <clears throat> no, they're not. The data doesn't support that. Well, the person on the left they're not really saying they're not really saying cops are indiscriminately killing black people that's what they're saying but what's happened is is they've seen enough video footage online that is incredibly troubling and it's causing them to feel a certain type of way about the footage they've seen right and you know even seeing two videos of you know an unarmed black person being killed or whatever the recent videos of yeah. um Nick tire nickels yeah, yeah tire nickels yeah jesus um that's pretty brutal to watch and that Watching that is going to cause an emotion that's going to give you a reaction that's going to cause you to feel that way, that black people are being indiscriminately murdered by police officers. Now, that's not true at all. If you look at the data, if you ask a person, like, how many unarmed black people are killed by cops a year, people will usually say, um, I I've heard anywhere from 500 to 10,000 uh, in some conversations. But the reality is it's very, very, very low double digits. Like, it's like 5 to 15. It's a very, very rare event that happens. But it's caught on video and it makes people feel the way. And... That's where, that's where those thoughts come from. So if you want to talk to somebody that's having those thoughts, you can't just say, well, the data, well, the data, well, the data. Because what that person is hearing is the thing that you're feeling is wrong. Yeah. Your feeling is incorrect. But it's not incorrect. They really do have that feeling. It's because they have seen those videos. So yeah, you always have to start from a place of like, listen, you're feeling this, and I'm acknowledging that. 
because at the end of the day, everybody just wants their whatever they feel to be acknowledged by another person. It's one of the best feelings ever, right? You have to acknowledge that feeling. And then once you've acknowledged that and you've kind of earned a little bit of trust and that at least you're hearing what they're saying and they feel that you're hearing what they're saying, um, then from there you can kind of be like, okay, well, how often do you think this actually happens? How many cops here in the United States, right? Like, do you really think that there's tons of black people being killed like every day? Wouldn't we be seeing this way more often than like one bad video every few months if there are hundreds of thousands of cops and, you know, millions of police interactions? You, you kind of work from there. That, that's broadly the approach that I try to take. Sure. I mean, I, I love that you brought this up. I think you've hooked into something incredibly important, which is to me, and it sounds like perhaps to you, it seems like politics is downstream from personal experience. Unfortunately, and, and I hate that, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm like, uh, when it comes to like politics, I'm very like autistic. Like I like, show me like the, give me the data points and the state. Like if somebody says, oh, would you rather get this car or that car? Like, you know, if, if as long as I don't care about the style, it's like, okay, well, let's like look at all the fucking numbers. Like that's, that's just the mind that I have. But most people, you're very correct. It's very downstream from like, how do we feel about things? What do we see? And how does that make us feel? feel and what are the narratives and stories that drive us basically yeah yeah sorry i, I mean no no I, I i mean this is this is where my brain goes a lot is that i feel so often i'll be in conversation and what needs to happen is like i mean this is i don't mean this to be demeaning but like tell me about your dad you know what what happened that caused this rupture with your relationship with authority or like tell me about your upbringing like who bullied you or beat you up and what did they look like tell me about the ways that you've been told that you're not enough and the color of the skin of the people who told you that and when that is explored it seems like all of the other stuff which you mentioned you know cops are indiscriminately killing black people or you could just as easily pick a uh, something that cuts in the other direction mm -hmm. It seems like the receptivity to doing what you discuss, which is let's look at the data, let's let's take a, perhaps a different approach than the one that you think is most necessary, can then be received because, as you sort of mentioned, the foundational thing that I see happening in politics is people want to be seen, understood, and heard, and they are pro they are, I think a little bit embarrassed and ashamed to admit that their experience is as deeply personal as it is and, it's, and then they project their personal trauma onto the world and say everyone has to clean up this issue outside in the world rather than me doing it at a very personal level does that match your understanding of of yeah, politics 100 percent, yeah and even outside of politics people in general just want to be seen understood heard right if you're mm -hmm. on a first date with somebody you know figure out the best questions you can ask them to make them talk about themselves as much as possible and then vibe off of that and you know like be reflective like these are things that you'll learn on dates these are things you'll learn from therapists the therapists do with clients these are things that police officers use in interrogation rooms to get yeah. subjects to open up and talk and talk and talk um yeah these are just like these are just life skills that are applied in every area and there's no reason why they wouldn't be applied politically as well yeah yeah um so you you're very interesting to me as a person i, I don't mean to butter you up yeah, you no you you talk about like i think jokingly but you're like i'm autistic i'm sociopathic i'm psychopathic and then uh, by on the flip side of that coin you seem to have a very deep understanding or at least sympathetic understanding of what people want and need in interactions is that a function of this analytical mind that you have or is that <clears throat> is that an intuitive understanding that you've come to um, so without trying to jerk myself off too much, um, the, I don't, I don't know if I'm actually like autistic or anything. I, I feel mm -hmm. like growing up, I feel like the way that I processed emotions is a lot different than other people. Uh, like I have a really hard time understanding certain things like family ties is something I have a really, I've never understood people that have like mommy daddy issues. I'm pretty separate from my family. I like, you know, um, there's a lot of things like that, that I just don't necessarily understand. Um, but I mean, I, I want to like have friends and have people like me and be able to be social and everything. So I, I spend like a great deal of time thinking about like social interactions. Like what are the things that you say that make people feel certain ways? What are people trying to get out of social interactions? Um, you know, what is the, uh, 
what is the exchange that's happening when two people talk? So I guess I've spent like a lot of time deliberately thinking about that. I don't know if that's an autistic thing or maybe I'm just kind of empathetic and I hide it in a dumb way or something. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've spent a great deal of time, I think, thinking about certain types of social interactions. Yeah. Do you, uh, one of the things I, I, you talk about empathy in your streams and how you're able to connect with people that have very different uh, backgrounds, worldviews, perspectives than you. Do you experience empathy as a felt sense or is it more a sympathy where you can uh, imagine yourself being in their shoes or does it, does it occur to you as like a feeling where you're feeling anxious on behalf of them? Uh, I have to think a lot about it. None of that is Got built it. in. I think, yeah, I don't have very many empathetic responses to things. Usually I have to, yeah, I have to think a lot. Yeah. Got it. So like a, a developed, sophisticated, sympathetic Sympathy, response. Basically. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, we can dive into the mommy daddy stuff later, but for now, <laughs> um, you mentioned Tyree Nichols. I'm curious what your, if you had a perspective on that, that isn't, you, we've, we've heard and I agree. I that called it's him Tyre earlier. I need you to edit that out. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Tyree Nichols. Yeah. Thank you. I, Nichols. I've never actually heard his name said before. I've only read it. So sure. Um, okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. What about it? No, I, I did the same thing. So <laughs> I had to watch it on, I had to watch it on YouTube before I had an understanding, but was curious the, the, I think response that I'm hearing from everybody is obviously this is a horrible thing. I'm curious if you have a perspective other than that, that, that is sheds light on this or is interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was that bad at all. You know, the guy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, like, obviously, I'm going to share the. It's a horrible perspective. The one thing I guess that I, um, I guess I kind of jumped into Twitter and thought about this a little bit. I, there are certain grand narratives that we have over society that people like to view things through. When people have like a pet issue or a certain ideology, they like to feel like they're one thing is the solution to everything. So if you talk to red pillars. Uh, like the collapse of the West is foundationally because men aren't men and women aren't women anymore. Uh, if you talk to feminists, they might say that the power structures that have been installed by men, the patriarchy, are what are, you know, accelerating us towards collapse in the future, that the inherent violence that men like to expel on women and other people, it, you know, plays out on a geopolitical level. And, and you know, that's where Putin and all that. Uh, if, if you talk to everybody has like a lens that they view things through, and that's why everything is happening. I don't like to view i don't like the racist lens where every single time something bad happens to a black person the cops are racist um like you know pe people look at it like the cops are racist well they're black well they have internalized racism like well okay well where's the evidence that they were being racist at all well it's the police force it's like okay well did, was it like a was it a racist call or whatever? It's like, well, no. Systemic racism means that um, the origination of the policing in the United States had racist ties to it. And police officers today across the United States probably have uh, some form of implicit bias and they participate in racist structures because legislation has made it so that black areas are police. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> like w when we're at this level of like racial analysis, like every single action that every single person is doing at all points in time become like simultaneously racist and not racist and, uh, you know, sexist. And, and it's just it's too much. I think at some point we need to be able to take a step back and look at some of these and be like, these look like pretty shitty cops. I don't know if one of them had a personal issue. There was that rumor floating that Tyree was with one of the wives of the officers. I think Tyree's family came out and said that's not true. So I don't know if there's something personal or what, but like right now, what I saw on video was a handful of really horrible cops that seemed like they were on a hardcore power trip. They tried to arrest somebody. The guy resisted and ran at first. And for some cops that like flips a switch that is like, oh, you're going to run for me? Well, I'm going to make you regret ever running for mm -hmm. me. And they went on a crazy power trip. Now, is it possible that they're racist? Sure. Is it possible that there's going to be some evidence that comes out where they've like been racist and it's like, ooh, that was probably racist? Yeah, for sure. Is there evidence right now that this was a result of white supremacy or anything to do with anti-black racism? Absolutely not. 
there has not been a shred of evidence provided. So when people jump to these, like, it's racist, it's racist, these cops are racist, it's like, I don't know if you can say that. Like, there are black people that are capable of being shitty to other black people that aren't racist. They're just kind of like shitty people. Same thing with white people, same thing with Hispanic people. Some of them are racist, some of them aren't. Some of them do bad things because they're racist. Some of them just do bad things because they're, you know, shitty people. Yeah, I watched a uh, a video with Piers Morgan and he had, you know, the typical talking head on one side and the other. And the thing that I thought was interesting is the woman was bringing up that black people can be racist. Uh, they can have internalized racism. Mm -hmm. And they argued about that point. Is it true? And I think what you said sort of underlines like, yes, that is possible. But we, we see no evidence for that in the simple fact that there was a crime between two, two people who were black where the perpetrator and the person who was being victimized were black. Mm -hmm. Um you mentioned, God, you mentioned so many things that I want to touch on in there. Um, you can always cut me off if I'm rambling. So. <laughs> no, no, this is why we have you. They, they get to hear plenty mm -hmm. of me. Um, what was that as regards to Harry Nichols? You mentioned it, the lens is what interests me more than any particular thing. And this is where I, I, I guess I come back to what it continues to be my main thesis, which is you see, I watched you watching a feminist uh, breakdown where for one feminist who was disabled, like everything needed to be viewed through, through the label of her disability for, mm -hmm. from one feminist who was a black Latina, that was the most critical thing. Yeah. And I, I don't, how, what is going on here? It seems like people make their own personal experience into, and try to proselytize it as if it were a religion that everyone ought to participate in, uh, without doing that own, that own work within themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, we have a very human thing that we do, which is pattern recognition. And sometimes we project patterns onto the world where there are none. I mean, look at constellations, right? They're, they're not actually pictures in the skies. It's just a bunch of dots that we draw pictures around, right? Um, and we think that that's kind of cute, but that's really how we process the entire world. Um, arguably on an incredibly subjective level, like even our brain is putting together, you don't actually see what's in front of you. You know, you've got two blind spots in your vision. You've got a ton of blood vessels running through your eyes that you can trick yourself into seeing if you're curious sometime. Um, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff our mind does to construct the world around us. And yeah, one of those things is uh, pattern recognition. Uh, sometimes people fall into this lens of, as kind of drawing back what I said before, this lens of viewing the world where they view it through either feminism or red pill or Republican or conservative or fascist or communist or whatever. And every single problem, they can find a way to retrofit everything into that particular thing. Um, and it gets to the point to where you can even have, you know, hypothetically a, a, a YouTuber, you know, donating millions of dollars to like give people sight because they can't afford surgeries. And somehow that becomes a bad thing because it's just a reminder of the material conditions that we live in that necessitate that Mr. Beast has to donate money just to give people the gift of sight when the government should be giving them that automatically <laughs> on its own. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like, where are we at right now? Why, how, are we, how are we attacking a guy that just gave Millions of dollars to give people surgeries to fix cataracts or, or to give them sight again. How is this a bad thing, you know? And yeah, that's, yeah, it's insane. Where do Too you, uh, so I, I spoke to Vosh probably two years ago and we had mm -hmm. a, a bit of a conversation about worker collectives and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Your current thoughts on uh, capitalism, where is it working? Uh, this is a big topic. Where is it working? Where is it not working? Um, it's important to recognize what things are, what they're good at and what they're bad at. Capitalism is really good because it is incredibly flexible and adaptable and it can respond so fluidly to so many different situations. Uh, you know, like pe people will always, I, I hear socialists say this a lot. Oh, capitalism runs on a boom bust cycle. That's horrible. And it's like, well, that's amazing because it can boom and bust and boom again. 
Okay, because there's a lot of central planning economies that just go bust and they never come back. They're destroyed for decades because a centrally planned economy is so much harder to adapt to ever-changing conditions than um, th than something that's more fluid. So capitalism is really good in that a bunch of people can stand around and go, I can make money there. I'm going to put my dollars there and I'm going to make money doing that. And I can do that really quickly. And that money might be made by providing the best product to a, a consumer where they can afford clothes or a car and they couldn't have afforded it in the past. And that money might go towards the, the cheapest and most cost-effective way to dump toxic sludge in a river that's going to, in 10 years, cause a whole bunch of kids in a small city to have four eyeballs, um, right? So capitalism isn't good or bad. It's just a, it's an, a way of organizing an economy. And I think it does really well at adapting to external market forces and, and, and having capital flowing to different things. So without understanding, uh, you look at the things that capitalism does well, um, which is allocating capital. You look at the things that capitalism does really poorly, and that's taking into account negative externalities. So these bad events that don't have a dollar price tag attached to them. So yeah. things like pollution are a big one. Um, and then you use the government to say like, okay, well, hey, if you're going to pollute, here's cap and trade. Here's a carbon tax. Now it's going to cost you money. Or hey, here's some regulations. And if you do this thing, you're going to get a big fine. You're going to get in big trouble. We're going to shut your company down. So yeah, that's how I view capitalism, I guess. I think that um, I'm very instrumentalist when it comes to all of these things. All of these things are tools to achieve some greater end. Who, no, I don't care about the tool. Nobody should care about the tool. You should care about the greater end, you know? If somebody says, I don't want there to be homeless people, that's good. You shouldn't want there to be homeless people. But the good is attached to relieving homelessness or alleviating homelessness. The good doesn't become attached to the process. If you think that rent control is a good way of alleviating homelessness, then that's cool. But if we find out that rent control sucks, then screw rent control, then get rid of it. But don't become morally attached to the rent control and say, well, if you don't like rent control, you must hate poor people. It's like, no, hold on. We don't care about the rent control. That's just a tool to effect some type of end. And if the end isn't being effected by the tool, then we dump the tool. People yeah. become very morally attached to their systems and tools rather than the ends that they're trying to achieve, I think. When when it comes to like to take uh, rent control with homeless people or something, when there is any kind of redistribution, I, I actually don't know the answer to this. I'm curious if you have a perspective, which is, do we is it morally right to redistribute wealth from those that have to those that may not? Because one, the system was rigged, and the people that don't have don't have it because they were losers in a rigged system. Uh, so like you know the way the capitalist economy is structured is such that the bourgeoisie take advantage of the proletariat, whatever, or is the system fair and there will always be, or, you know, obviously it doesn't have to be one of these. It could be on a continuum. Is the system fair? There will always be winners and losers, but it is unethical for anyone to have billions of dollars, even if they earned it by having eight arms and 12 brains and contributing at a level that was so far beyond someone who is not contributing to the collective. Have you thought about like sort of the moral basis of, of redistribution within a capitalist society? Yeah. Redistribution, I think, is based on two really important concepts. One is life is not fair, okay? You, How much you achieve and where you end up is oftentimes highly determined by where you were born, who you were born to, the education that you get, a bunch of stuff that you don't have any right to, right? Your parents gave it to you. And um, the second thing is a concept called uh, marginal utility. I think these are the two things that redistribution is built around. So one, um, you know, people will be born middle class to middle class parents who were born middle class. They'll stay middle class their whole lives and they'll die. And they'll look at a person that was born into a working class family, remains working class, dies working class, and they'll look down on that person. 
And it's like, why? They did the same shit you did. They started out at level, you know, five and they ended their life at level five. You started out at level 10 and you ended your life at level 10, right? If you're going to look down at a working class person for staying working class and coming working from working class families, then I mean, like they should look down on you for being born middle class and not becoming a millionaire. You know, like what were you doing? You had every opportunity in the world to become a millionaire. And instead you just got a job as an engineer making 130,000 a year. Like, wow, you know, big deal. Uh, how are you going to make fun of the guy making 35,000 a year when you were born and you had like a, you know, mommy, daddy welfare, you're up until you're 23 years old paying for your whole school and everything, you know, not to attack either side, right? Everybody has their everybody has their struggle. Um, but yeah, I think that where you're born and the situation you're born into, I, I think are obviously anybody will admit like highly influential on your outcomes. Um, so if that's true, I think that there should you should probably be willing to help out the people at the bottom a bit if you're a person at the top. That's one. The second thing is a concept called marginal utility. If you offer me a thousand dollars, I'll be grateful and that's cool, but it's not gonna change my life. I don't care. Um, but if you offer a homeless person a thousand dollars, theoretically, it could be life changing. Uh, marginal utility is, I think it's a concept that comes from economics, but basically like the next amount is always gonna be, even even if the absolute value is the same, the utility granted is gonna be a little bit different. Your first $10,000 that you make is gonna be a lot different than your next $10,000, right? A person making 50,000 a year, their life is gonna change completely going from 50 to 100,000 a year. But a person making a million dollars a year, their life's not gonna change going from a million to a million $50,000, right? So if marginal utility is true, then people at the top can afford to lose a bit of money and give it to people at the bottom, their lives are hardly gonna be impacted at all. And the people at the bottom theoretically can have vast improvements based on that redistribution. Um, well, so the, I, presumably what, mm -hmm. what curbs this is the, the, who earned the money, right? So there's, there's the limit on marginal utility is if we, if we played that out to the extreme, we would eventually all have the same amount of money. And I, I assume where you would curb that is, you know, this person, be it through gift of their parents, gift of God, whatever mm -hmm. worked, earned, or just fell into this money. And we leave most of it with them for, for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to say that, like, um, I don't think everybody should have the same amount of money. I'm not trying to say that uh, I like my money. <laughs> I, I don't want to give it all away, you know? I'm just saying that, like, you shouldn't be so reticent to help people that are in worse positions. Like, uh, not everybody is capable of contributing to society in the same ways that other people are. But I, I still think that it's, it just, it makes for a better world for everybody. You want everybody to be brought in or not bought. You want everybody to be bought into the society that you're running. It's just everything works so much better that way. Have you ever seen the movie School of Rock? Yeah. It's one, it is a, it is a, I don't know if the writers did this intentionally, but Jack Black is a masterclass on leadership in that movie. Mm -hmm. um, I, do you remember the part where he put together the band? And he brings and them was, all in, in their own way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, the little, there was the little boy who was really sad. He's like, we don't get to be in the band. And then he found unique jobs for every single person. Because having half the class just saying they're watching, they're not going to feel bought into it. But he gave everybody a job. He made all of them feel important. And that's something that a good leader does, right? That could be a supervisor in a restaurant. It could be a, a mid-level manager in a business. It could be a project lead on a software development team. Like every, you have to make everybody feel like they're bought into whatever project they're working on. I'm sure there's got to be a chapter in how to friends and influence people where uh dale carnegie probably talks about this right but mm -hmm. it's, it's such an important concept so um yeah so for society like uh i like being wealthy in america because i want to be like wealthy in america because america is a cool country i don't want to go and be like the king of ashes and like in a destitute you know spot where everybody else around me is in poverty so um I think that I think that having people at the top willing to give back to people at the bottom to maintain everything running smoothly and to keep everybody bought in and happy, I think is really important. Got it. So if you 
sort of more concretely, where do you land? Because I think that even a lot of right-leaning people would probably agree with a lot of what you said. They don't want to be king of mm-hmm. the ashes. They do want to give back. But then when it comes to nuts and bolts, there's, mm-hmm. oh, no, fuck no. <laughs> You're oh, not sure. taking So nuts and bolts, concretely, where do I land? So I'm in favor of a progressive tax system. I'm totally mm-hmm. okay with that. Um, I, here's, this is where, I, okay, so again, this is the instrumental part. And a lot of left-leaning people focus on this. I don't think taxes are good. I don't think taxes are bad. Taxes are just a thing that we need to fund the social programs that we want to, well, to fund the government, right? So what I think we should do as a government is we need to figure out what social programs do we need? Do we want a form of public uh, option for healthcare? I personally think we should. Do we want to fund more public transit? Um, do we want to fund, uh, you know, these other types of welfare programs like food stamps or, or, or WIC or whatever, all these other things? Find out what we need to fund and then tax on a progressive level appropriately. That should be full stop how the system works. Um, a lot of left-leaning people get hyper fixated on this, like there should be no billionaires or people. I don't care about any of that. I don't care how much money you have. You earn a hundred billion dollars, you're Elon Musk, you know, congratulations. Like, I think you should keep the vast majority of your money. Um, but like, yeah, but I mean, paying taxes to fund the social programs that we think are essential to running society in a way that has the standard of living acceptable for every person in the United States, I think that should be the goal. Homeless people in the United States is unacceptable we have too much money here too much wealth it's going to san francisco is insane to be in a coffee shop with uh, you know 20 people that are all making at least a quarter million a year and you step outside and there are insane homeless people screaming right outside the coffee shop that's wild to me i shouldn't exist in the united states do you so i i actually am not really steeped in these politics some of the people in california i live in los angeles believe that it is the receptivity to the homelessness you know the the um extension of programs that exists in place like San Francisco and Los Angeles that create uh, an environment where there is more homelessness? Is that something you push back against? Do you think that the that redistribution is something that can solve that problem or at least most of the homeless problem? Um, I just, oh man, I just moved out of LA. <laughs> um, I live over in Miami now. Um, I also moved out of LA. I mean, it was for that uh-huh. reason. It was, uh, I used to live in Santa Monica right on the third street promenade and it was, okay. you know, the homeless people spitting on my dog uh, cursing you off, calling you names in the street. It was uncomfortable. And also I think part of the issue in terms of you said people bring their own lens is I am totally cognitively sure that most homeless people are not represented in my experience of that downtown Santa Monica experience. Yet my personal experience is of mostly mentally uh, challenged and very aggressive homeless that are the ones that make themselves most known in your life when you live in that area. So (laughs) I try to curb my instinct to be like, this is unsolvable by money because when I see some of those people, there is not really an amount of money that could be offered to them that would, would would solve that problem. I think that the, I think the first thing is, um, first thing is people have to stop viewing other people as being fundamentally different than themselves. Like 99% of humans, we all come from the same soup. We all have the same basic drives. Um, Nobody generally wants to be homeless. Nobody generally wants to be lazy. Nobody generally wants to just leech off the government network. That doesn't make most people feel good. Um, So we start from there. For a lot of homeless people, um, we need to, it's not just a matter of throwing money at them because just throwing money at problems doesn't always fix it. You need like good streamlined ways of solving issues relating to homelessness. So if a person is homeless, they probably need a place to stay before they can get the rest of their life together. So getting them some kind of house where they can shower and, and have like a base of operations before getting them into work, rehabilitating them in other ways. Like I think that those types of stuff, figuring out like how can we apply our money in a way that uh, is Positive is better than just throwing money at things. Um, and then the second part of that, because I know a lot of people if, are probably get really angry when I said everybody's fundamentally the same. Like, no, you don't understand these fucking homeless people. 
It is true that for homeless people, there is a special side thing where a lot of them have extreme forms of mental illness. Well, I shouldn't say a lot, but definitely the ones you'd notice. Yeah. Um, anybody that has um, lived outside of a fucking suburb, because a lot of these people on the left will say, oh no, homeless people are just our un unhoused neighbors and blah, blah, blah. If you've walked down any street in a major city in the United States, in Miami, in Austin, in Seattle, New York, LA, um, you will have like the guy that is like, you know, you're sitting at a crosswalk and it's like, I'm going to kill you. And you're like, holy shit. And it's just a guy that just walks by you. Like, <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't even stop. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, just a homeless guy. Um, yeah. Th these people need some sort of like, they have to be housed somewhere. Um, you, you either in some type of like permanent mental health facility or th there has to be something. Um, because obviously these people are probably never going to be like, oh, I can just work a normal job. Like you have to have special jobs for them. You've got to have special places with like psychiatric care available to them. Um, but yeah, that, 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 again, that needs like a process. It's not just a matter of throwing money at things, which I think sometimes we do. That was mm -hmm. one of the things that a lot of people will call me a hypocrite. It's like, oh, you moved to Florida with no income tax and you left California with high income tax, blah, blah, blah. Um, that is partially true. However, the reason why I don't like the taxes in California is because I don't know where my money goes. Yeah. I don't know what I was getting for my tax in California because God damn, you get taxed a lot there. But my the city is insane. The streets are broken everywhere. On my little Focus RS, I'm scraping my bumper coming out of every gas station. There's homeless people all over the place. Everything is like, I don't know if the schools absorb all the tax money or what, but like if I lived in, in like, if I lived in like Stockholm or Paris or London or these places with like these grand expansive public transit systems with all of these services where you get your healthcare and shit paid for, yeah, fuck it, I'll pay 50% taxes. But man, I'm living in California paying an effective tax rate, I think of almost like 42%. Yeah. That's insane. I live in the United States of America. I thought we were supposed to have low taxes here. What's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that just drove me crazy. But yeah, just refocusing. It can't just be throwing money at problems. It has to be throwing money at good solutions to problems. Just money isn't going to fix anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I relate to the California thing. I think what California gets by on is the fact that there's like 200 plus days of sun. And so whenever I look at my tax bill, I go, this is not going to the government. This is the price that they can charge me the for weather. the sunshine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they just happen to own this piece of land and they're taxing me for the sun that I receive. But I sure. feel similarly. It's like I, I can't see where it's going and I, I hope that it's going to to useful places, but I don't know that it is. Mm -hmm. And it also sounds like you would be in favor of, which I don't, I feel like most people should get behind this. The idea of small experimental government programs, which is rather than roll out instantaneously a multi-billion dollar thing to solve homelessness, to break that, to apportion that into smaller approaches where one might be like, you know, uh, weekly mental health checkups, one might be free housing. You know, they might include different things because it sounds like we don't know how to solve the problem of homelessness and just chucking money at to the first idea or, you know, some expert's idea of what's going to work seems to not have been very effective versus mm -hmm. if we took a, a more scientific approach to it and ran a bunch of experiments, we might be able to start small and then scale a solution. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I don't think the political will is there. I mean, homeless people aren't voters. We don't mm -hmm. really care about them politically because they're not, you know, influencing any electoral outcomes. Mm. Um, people in cities are affected, but I mean, these are probably people that largely live in apartments maybe, and they don't vote as much as like suburban people who don't deal with homeless people. That's like my guess. Usually when a problem isn't getting solved, um, most people immediately go to like lobbyists and political influence or whatever. Uh, usually I, what I try to think of is like, well, who's voting? And I feel mm -hmm. like that actually will get you an answer more closely for why a problem is or isn't getting solved, right? Sure. When you look at like police forcing, you know, like police, police issues don't get solved because capitalist companies are paying off the politicians to maintain the defenders of capital and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I think, well, who's more likely to vote, right? You know, poor disenfranchised minorities that are being negatively impacted by cops or affluent white 
older voters who probably never see cops in their life except to say hi to like their friendly police officer on the street, right? These people aren't voting to defund the police or get rid of them. These people are scared of the other people that are being negatively impacted by the police, right? So it's obvious like which way the policies are going to go. Just look at the voting base. You, you don't need like lobbyists or crazy conspiracies to figure out why the things aren't changing the way you want them to. Especially sure. with only like a 20 or 30% voter turnout in a lot of cities, which is where your mayor who nominates your chief of police and everything comes from. So I have never voted. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly politically disengaged, though, just like every red-blooded American, I argue about it heatedly mm-hmm. at the dinner table. Sure. Uh, is that the way that I've looked at it is for a couple of excuses that I'm sure you've heard before. One, I live in California in terms of the presidential election, not likely to break, though there was a mayoral election that was very, very tight in Los Angeles mm-hmm. that might actually have local effect. Um, two, when I've zoomed out and asked how can I spend my time, it feels like there's so much mud thrown into the political arena where it's like there are so many forces acting against my understanding of who these candidates are, what they're going to do, and what the outcomes will be, that the amount of time required for me to form a solidly based opinion, to choose between A or B, seems insurmountable, not insurmountable, seems like a poor use of time compared to what else I might do that could otherwise positively impact my community from the private sector or just from being a good brother, friend, son, etc. And I'm curious if you find that sufficient to uh, morally exempt myself from voting or if you say no that's you know that's not enough i mean i think we should vote it's good to i think it's good to vote you you want to see how many people are voting mm-hmm. it's like um i i, I think it's good because it, it helps us understand um it helps us understand where the country's at for things so, so like here's something i'm thinking of. i'm trying to look this up real quick but like uh one issue that Democrats face right now is we, we're fighting against a lot of systemic stuff that uh, is, I don't want to say it's undemocratic, but it, it hurts the representation. No, hold on. How should I say this? <clears throat> there are systems in place in the United States that favor a smaller number of voters in some areas versus others. So two big examples of this are the Senate, which I support. I think it's okay for states to have representation. But man, when a citizen in Wyoming has two senators and a citizen in California that is like 50 times the population has two senators, that's pretty wild. But then two, it also comes out in the electoral college, where we also have like a widely disproportionate representation of how powerful is your single vote. But I think it's important to say because, uh, you know, I, I fought with a lot of Trump people that will argue this, you know, well, Trump won the election, well, Trump won the election. Like, sure, but Hillary Clinton got three million more votes, right? Trump might have won the election, but don't pretend like he was the most popular president in the United States of America. That's not true. Um, so I think that every vote matters. I think it's important to be able to look at like where the, you know, popular will is. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you if you're in California, your vote's never deciding a, an important presidential election or something. But like your down ballot votes, I think, can be important. Um and it's good to just see like nationally, even if you don't feel like uh, even if you don't feel like you're going to swing a state. Uh, I mean, you've got third party votes where if you get them up to, you know, five percent of the state's uh, election total, I think they can get some type of funding to get a balance. There's other stuff there. Uh, and, and voting is just like kind of like it's the most important thing, arguably, that you can do in a democratic republic because you want to, you know, having your citizens choose the leaders is a, a great responsibility. How do for people the, educate? Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, in terms of the, the education, of education here's the one ask that I make of people. Um Sometimes I think people want like the golden bullet, like, okay, well, listen, uh, two articles a day from the Wall Street Journal, uh, three, uh, you know, on the ground reportings from Reuters, and maybe one from the Associated Press, um, and then do one from Fox News, one from CNN, and then you're like, yeah, fuck all that, you don't know all that shit. 
Um, and, and also there's no like magical, you know, bullet there. Um, one of the issues we have today is a lot of people say that it's really difficult to find out where to consume good media. I don't agree with that. I think it's pretty easy. The problem that people are actually running into is we're used to passively consuming media. And passively consuming media means that we see the headlines coming across our social media feeds, and then we run with those headlines and then with the pundits that interpret those for us. If you just read a full article about whatever headline you've read, you will be more informed than 98% of the voting population. Even if you fucking read shit like Breitbart or Fox News or, um, you know, New York Times, or whatever, whatever you read, just don't read just the headline. Just read the full article. Articles today are written to be read in like four to six minutes. They're usually like six paragraphs. <laughs> These are like shorter than most of your high school English writing assignments. They can be read very quickly. Just read the full article. And as long as you're doing that, you're getting way more information and context than 99% of people. Even if you read from media sources that I personally don't think are the greatest, you'll still be more informed. So if you're, if you're trying to get into it and you feel like really overwhelmed by everything, just like stop and just read an article for four to six minutes. If you do that, you will find that you have so much more information than you ever believed possible by just reading a five-minute article. There were so many people I debated about the Kyle Rittenhouse stuff who would just say the wildest things about... Um, I watched this. Like, this this was mind bending to to watch some of the conversations that you had about race. Yeah, how many people are like? Oh yeah, well, I mean, he's a white supremacist. He killed two black kids for no reason. I was like, none of the people <laughs> killed were black. Um, the stuff that started. All, I had a debate with Sam Cedar over this, where um, the stuff that started off was over um, the killing of Jacob Blake, right? The guy that got mm -hmm. shot in the back six times by cops. That wasn't a killing. He's not even dead. But a lot mm -hmm. of people think he is. If you say like, oh, remember the Jacob Blake shooting? Yeah. And, and Sam Cedar even started the conversation off mm -hmm. saying, oh yeah, that guy that got killed by the cops. He didn't get killed. He's paralyzed, but he's not dead. Um, just read the articles, read the full articles that they come out and don't trust 15 second video clips. I would never <laughs> trust a 15 second video clip. If somebody's showing you a 15 second video clip, they, it's that is a highly edited, highly sensitive. And I don't care if we're talking about cops killing somebody. I don't care if we're talking about Andrew Tate being misogynistic. I don't care if you're talking about a destiny clip of something that I've said, 15 second video clips are highly sus. Try to just see the greater conversation where they came from. Find the original video, watch like a minute before a minute after. Yeah. Generally, when I advocate for media literacy, I'm just saying just read a little bit more. There's sure. not going to be like a golden bullet. Like that's going to give you all the good information. Very rarely will anybody lie. Almost nobody lies outright in the media. Usually they just tell you selective pieces of information. And if you read it all, you'll kind of get a feel for like what's not being said. Yeah. One of my one of the reasons that I and I think that was all um, would would benefit a lot of people a lot. One of the reasons that I don't do that is because I feel like when I watch the news, there is a selection bias. Like I'm going mm -hmm. to be told about policing in America and not the war in fucking Africa. I'm going to be told what is important. And then there's a tremendous amount of how to think about that as well. Like if the race of the police officer is included, if Andrew Tate is listed as misogynist influencer, Andrew Tate, like a lot of the secret thinking and interpreting is being done for me. So I've even not rightly necessarily just from my own perspective of liking philosophy, I think more than politics have have tried to step back and read books, you know, the stuff that has been around for a long time to form mm -hmm. general ideas, but to, to truly not know the specifics of who I ought to vote for, what what is uh, correct in this particular case with Jacob Blake, because it does seem like when most people engage, and I'm not saying this is what you're doing, and perhaps this mm -hmm. is your frustration with other people, is there there's just ego games that are being played in this political arena where it's like, mm. oh, you didn't know. And, I, and it's particularly, I think that streaming falls victim to this, which is it, it really is at, from my, from my eyes, a lot of the debates become who can look tougher, <laughs> who can, sure. who can win the debate with uh, some sort of an ego game. And uh, 
I, I have sensed your frustration with that at times. It's the person who often is, you know, does want to read the article or is mm-hmm. adjusting their opinion over time. And I've just sort of elected to not play the political game except to view it from a meta level of like, what does this tell me about who this person is and what their issue is with their mom or dad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's where I often land. I think for a lot of, when it comes to ego stuff, so here, like when you're growing up, we all learn how important it is to be like unbiased. Um, I don't think that's right. I think that what you have to learn is it's important to acknowledge your biases. You can be biased. You should be biased. I am biased in favor of my wife. If she tells me something, I'm probably going to believe her over a stranger because it's my fucking wife, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm biased against uh, certain types of people in the media because I know they've told lies before. I know I'm, I'm not, you know, if James O'Keefe and Project Veritas come on the video, right? I'm probably not going to trust that initially, right? When, when you're doing homework, the important thing is not to go, okay, I'm going to be unbiased. It's to acknowledge your biases. Um, sometimes when I do research on stream, I've done this before in the past, where especially over a lot of vaccine-related stuff, um, I was going to put on a Joe Rogan podcast. I go to put on a Joe Rogan podcast, and I write at the time my notepad. It's okay. We're going to listen for claims. We're going to write down stuff. We're going to research. And I write r- right at the very top, I do not like Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. The reason why it's important for me, well, I don't like his takes. I, I think he's a cool guy, but I don't like a lot of his takes. I don't like vaccine stuff. But the reason why it's important for me to write that is because I need to understand that I am predisposed towards him saying something and me outright disagreeing with it, even for no good reason, right? I might find myself in the middle of a podcast with Joe Rogan saying things like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I think sometimes, you know, one plus one equals two. And I'm like, that's not true. It doesn't always, <laughs> not Euclidean geometry, maybe. And it's like, at some point in the stomach, it's like, oh, hold on. Are you disagreeing with this guy just because you don't like him? Or do you mm. actually have like some merit to the disagreement? Because there are people that say things that are really, uh, that, that they, they say a lot of dumb shit, but sometimes they say stuff that's true. And yeah, you just got to be really careful about that. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the biases you have. And then when you are doing research, doing homework, reading articles, just be aware that like, okay, I really don't like, I don't like this Trump guy. I don't like this Biden dude. And when he says something, I might be a little bit more poisoned against that statement than I would be otherwise. Um, so I need to be extra careful not to fall into all of the little mental pitfalls that are, you know, that lay before me when analyzing this person's speech. Sure. One of the, you know, you mentioned unconscious bias and I went to, to thinking, cause I hear that in terms of race, mm-hmm. my it's, I think one of the things that is tough to do that I've tried to catch is when people are talking, I think that some people, myself included, can have an intuitive sense that they are not following, but not be able necessarily to accurately determine where or why the jump in logic is occurring from that other person. And mm-hmm. so this is actually something that occurred with me with unconscious bias. I, I, when I would listen to that stuff, I was like, this isn't sounding right to me. And where I landed was, oh, there is a tremendous amount of unconscious bias. I mean, I carry unconscious bias about everything, race included, gender included, gender orientation included, all of those are in there. Mm-hmm. But to reduce unconscious bias or to elevate those you know, three pillars to the most important unconscious biases I have is not true for me. And I, and I know that from exploring some of my biases, which is I have far deeper biases against all different things than that. So I don't know. That just came to me as you were discussing unconscious bias. I don't know if you have a reaction to it. Not that you need to. Um, yeah, that's the whole other trip of my life. I did a lot of drugs. Uh, I want to talk about that. Me too. Oh yeah, sure. (laughs) That's where, that's Um, where this exploration came from. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the same here. Yeah. I used to think, um, when I'm prior to thirties, prior to doing way too many mushrooms, um, if you would have asked me, I would have said that like 95% of your thoughts are pretty much kind of in your control and you've got 5% is underneath this underlying like mood or vibe that's influencing your thoughts. You got to be really careful that you don't let that 5% throw off the other 95% because that'll mess you up real bad. 
Um, and then after doing a lot of drugs, I almost completely flipped that where I'm like, I think like 10 to 20% of your thoughts maybe are like unusual. And you've got like 80 to 90% of this mood underneath that you need to be hyper cognizant of because it can hijack your entire cognitive system before you even realize you've had a thought and, and poison you against something. So yeah, but that's a, it goes off into a different area, but yeah, I well, think it's really let's important. Let's go off in that, that direction. I, I'm, sure. So th- it's, it's for me, I, so I've, I've also done psilocybin. I've done some MDMA. I've always done it in a pretty regulated environments, often with like a therapist guiding. Okay. And the, I'll give you just an example. I, you know, I have this podcast. I'll sometimes talk about politics, but usually from a uh, sort of a meta perspective, like I said, because I don't know how to engage with the specifics of it. But I've, I have this thing about the New York Times, and I can always point to, they, this story was fucked up, or this thing was fucked up. And mm-hmm. in one of the, one of the trips that I did, it came to me that my fucking this the root of this, why I am predisposed to have a, an issue with them, is that my dad, I remember would always listen to the New York Times and not to me. <laughs> and it okay. fucking pissed me off. So I remember I told him about Jordan Peterson three, four years prior to the New York Times running an article and that guy was just a kook. And uh-huh. then he shows up in the New York Times and all of a sudden, I got to check this guy, Jordan Peterson, out. So uh, seeing that process play out for myself so many times where I feel like I have these intellectually, rationally grounded perspectives and values about what is important and what needs to be paid attention to, only to have it revealed that these are highly personal things relating to my past desire to be loved and accepted inside my family and inside my group of friends Uh uh, was highly influential to me. And I'm curious because I I watched a video where I think you did like 10 and a half grams of mushrooms or something insane. Yeah, it was really stupid, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, have you unlocked those sorts of knowings in yourself? Has, do you, do you understand why you are the way that you are from those sorts of things? I'd love to just like open that conversation up. Yeah. Unfortunately, most of those are like kind of personal, um, Mm -hmm. revelations of like life and things that I care about in terms of like Mm -hmm. having other people that I love near me. Not, Mm -hmm. it's not a very intellectual. Um, I get really lucky for, um, the intellectual stuff I took, uh, when I was in high school, I took an AP psychology class. And that class was probably one of the most important classes I've ever taken in my life because basically it was just chapter after chapter after chapter of these are the reasons why you cannot trust anything that you believe <laughs> because you are loaded with so many cognitive biases. And we watched so many good videos. We went over the Milgram experiment, the um, Stanford Arthur Prison Ash experiment. Arthur one is great too. We, yeah, we got to rerun Ash that. line test and everything. We did yeah. that. We reran that. I mean, so many of these experiments you can't rerun nowadays. Mm-hmm. We did that and it mm-hmm. worked every time. In a high school, oh my God, it was insane. Mm-hmm. And so the Ash one, for people like, who don't know, I'll, I'll just yeah, quick tell, yeah. is there's, an, there's uh, this thing, I for, it's like an optical illusion where there's two lines. There's A and B and they mm-hmm. are the same exact length and you sit a bunch of people in a row and you have them publicly say which line is longer and the first three people are plants and so they say a a a and the fourth person is the one you're doing the experiment on to see if they'll cave to that social pressure and they did in our high school every time mm-hmm. uh, which was the just really fascinating. fascinating thing about that experiment was people cave when they have to stand up and answer mm-hmm. when asked to write answers privately mm-hmm. and they didn't reveal it to the rest of the class they still caved. Ooh, <laughs> we didn't do that. Still caved. Fascinating. That's and that was with private answers. Yeah. So, um, and now it actually the, affects what they believe is what yeah. that seems to imply. It's not just mm-hmm. I'm trying to fit in. It's I am so deeply trying to fit in that I can trick myself about what what I am seeing. Which is, I mean, that that has yeah, maybe either trick yourself or the societal pressure is so big. Even if people can't judge you, you're still judging yourself. Yeah, I don't I don't know mm-hmm. which one it is there, but it could it could be uh, both. The um, but it over something so simple as like a line. Like whether one is taller or shorter, like if it, if it impacts us that much there, imagine on more complicated social dynamics, how much we're being influenced and pressured by people around us. So, um, yeah, I, I try to be really careful 
I try to be aware that I have a ton of biases. I'm going to hear things that I want to hear. I'm going to remember things I'm going to want to remember. I'm going to discount people that I want to discount. I'm going to be really egotistical, or arrogant about my own beliefs. I always get, I try to be fair to myself too. Like if I'm arguing with somebody and they're proving me wrong on something, like it's very rare that I'm going to change my mind in the moment. That's incredibly rare. I don't expect anybody to do that. I don't expect anybody I debate to do that. I don't expect anybody ever to do that. But I'll try to like reflect on conversations I feel like didn't go very well over the next few days because I'll have some distance temporally from the conversation so I can kind of rethink about things. I'm not as emotionally invested and then I can kind of like change up based on how I feel like the conversation went. Do I need to change my opinion? Do I need to argue about something better? Um, yeah, but that's I, been a I hugely think- important learning for, for me just mm-hmm. uh, to hop on that was there's moments in conversation where I feel if I push harder, the other person is going to build a fortress around mm-hmm. what they believe. And if I just stop here and they are not forced to dig in, we walk away and come back, their position can magically transform without them having to do the the ego work of acknowledging that, you know, I, I had attached to this idea and then had to detach from it. So sh- cutting persuasive conversation shorter than I used to has mm-hmm. weirdly enough been a very effective way to be influential as opposed to making them carve out their place and then assailing it, in which case they're, they're not going to move at all. Yeah, for sure. And that's, um, th- that's a hard thing to do, especially as a public figure, because your audience wants you to crucify somebody every single time, <laughs> yeah. but oftentimes it's not the most effective way to get them to change their mind on an sure. issue. You want to give them a little bit of space to breathe and a little space to grow. I think that one of the benefits I have with a lot of people I talk to is I, I want to foster, foster this feeling that you, I, I'm kind of like a safe landing pad to try out new ideas. Like if I'm having an argument with you or if we disagree on something, you're like, well, okay, maybe this idea isn't the worst. I'm not going to jump anything. Like, I told you, you idiot. This is why blah, 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 blah. Like I'm not going to judge you for it. Like if you're going to entertain anything that I'm saying, I'm going to be really excited and happy about it. And I'll try to find a way to make it work kind of in your world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, I... Yeah, I can't think of an example. Maybe you, maybe I'm arguing with you about minimum wage. I don't want you to, you know, it's like, oh, well, maybe minimum wage, you know, I think it's bad for businesses. It's like, okay, but like, hey, you know, maybe you're racist, you know, higher minimum wage means Hispanics are probably less likely to get hired and illegal immigrants aren't going to get hired if we enforce the minimum wage really hard. So it kind of favors like native workers. Don't you like that a little bit, right? Like you're trying to like work with them and then everyone's like, oh, okay, you know, I guess maybe this is okay. You know, uh, try, try to be like, you always want to be like a safe place for a person to explore ideas and not have the feeling that you're going to jump down their throat or do a big like, I told you so if you end up being correct on something, you know? For sure. Um, so I want to go back for a moment and if you, yeah. if it's all too personal, you don't have to, to the, uh, your experience with psilocybin, what you took from it. Um, mm-hmm. and I, it, to me, it is interesting. I don't know if you feel uncomfortable, but like, mh- uh, you're a dad, you've, you've got, uh, I believe it's a wife, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. So it you've got a wife. A wife yeah. it, it is a wife. <laughs> Sorry. That's <laughs> it, a funny indeed, way of yeah. that. So you've got a wife, you're a dad. Um, I'm curious what psilocybin has done for you, if it's affected those relationships or any of your other personal relationships, uh, I, I um, think that stuff is, is truly more interesting to me than politics. So yeah, sure. It's a, to, there's a big like 90 degree offshoot. Absolutely. Talking about. Um, I am a very independent person. I'm a very internally driven person. I'm not, I don't need a lot of social validation to do what I do. It's been one of the things that's kind of helped me guide me through a lot of the streaming process because I can deal with a lot of hate online and generally I'm not as affected um, as most people. And then I'm also like an independent person in real life. I don't need a lot of like other people driving me. I'm very internally driven. If I want to do something, I'll do it because I want to do it. I don't care what other people think about it generally. Um, I, I thought that kind of that was like the the master of my thought process existence or whatever. Uh, when I did a whole bunch of mushrooms, I think typically most people, once you get past five grams, you're you're dissolving a lot of these very fundamental processes that all kind of come together to make your conscious experience. And when you start to tear a lot of those back, 
and you are kind of like left seeing, you know, what's remaining. You're not keeping track of time very well. You start to dissolve this sense of self, which is hard to even explain. Um, you start losing track of your own thoughts. Um, you start to lose track of a lot of memories. Um, a lot of people refer to parts of this, depending on how far you go, as like ego death. Um, once you once you start to make this journey into here, you get a lot of interesting thoughts that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, and you get a lot of interesting perspectives that you wouldn't otherwise. One of the things that I kind of took away from it is when I came in, obviously I fought it a lot because it was my first trip ever, which Ooh. was super stupid. Um, and I was not ready for how intense it was. I thought it was oh going to be like gosh. smoking weed. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I found out was that it was a really horrifying, awful experience to me. Uh, because I felt like, I felt like I'd broken through to the real reality that like, um, yeah, like reality is actually just me sitting here on a couch alone in the middle of the universe with no sense of self and no other people. And it's the worst thing in the world. And I wish <laughs> that I could like take another drug to go back to, I'd rather fool myself yeah. into believing that other reality is true than wherever the fuck I'm at right now. Cause this is lonely and horrible. So I learned one thing immediately. The immediate thing I learned was that, um, not all truth is good. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I think that it might actually be the case that even truth is instrumental and that truth is only good so long as I can utilize it to make my life better. There might be some true things I could learn that I actually wouldn't want to learn. I'd rather be deceived. Um, and in that sense, if if that was the true reality, me being insane as a god in a universe somewhere with no other person to talk to, I'd rather just be like a normal person in this universe is way, way, way better. That was the first thing I learned. And then something that I learned on another trip, which is a, a long story, but I we accidentally took way too many mushrooms again, but I was more prepared for it that time. The second thing I learned was that the reason why that was so horrifying to be alone in some crazy universe somewhere where everything was like very fucked and different and boring and horrible was actually because I would have been totally alone. And the idea of like speaking to another person and they're all just constructs in my mind and the idea of being truly in a place where I can't talk to another like sentient being like that felt really horrible to me so i learned that i guess like other people are actually very important to my existence even if i am kind of a loner like having at least a few friends to talk to or other people to bounce ideas off of or other unique minds to connect with to have a presence in my life is probably the most important thing to me i don't think i could live on a planet with no other people even if i had every other amenity available to me so mm. yeah no I, I i find that stuff um super super interesting i for me i uh i relate 
to some of the ways that you've described your upbringing, which is like you played a lot of JRPGs, you got good at reading because of that. I remember I played StarCraft. You were, you know, I beat yeah. the campaign on normal. I was not, <laughs> I was okay. not anything to be impressed you with. Beat the campaign, okay? <laughs> yeah. okay saying, yeah. <laughs> you know, I did bitch out in the last fight against the Overlord. I got to be honest. I, oh, okay. uh, I got the Overmind rather. Wow. Um, but, you know, it, some of the things that you we were saying, I, I wanted to ask because you're talking about like connecting with minds. One of the things that has recently come to me through Mushrooms is a, um, it sounds cheesy, but like a felt sense of myself as being more heart-based than head-based. And I'm mm-hmm. curious if that has been an experience that you have had through, you know, getting older or, or any of these trips or if it has been a more logical uh, thought sphere. Um, I'm still pretty mind-based, but the mm-hmm. heart part is a lot more important than I thought it was, I guess. Yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well... Uh, I hope you continue to do it because it's been super valuable for me. Do you have any sort of like practice around it or anything like that? Or is it just, you know, when you're with friends and it and it makes itself available? Uh, what do you mean by practice? Like being in like a therapeutic setting or? Uh, like, like I will take a microdose. Or? I will microdose oh. once a week or something like that and sit in the sun and meditate or something like that. Or I'll do no, a breath work. I, as much as I talk about it, I really haven't done it. I'd say I probably had less than 20 experiences in my life of like mushrooms and LSD. Uh, maybe 20 or 30 if you include MDMA. So I don't, it's not like I'm doing it like all the time. Um, yeah, but my experience has so far been fun. Cool. I, after my first big one, I had to take like a year break from doing anything because it took me like a full year to get back to normal, um, to go from never having, because when I smoked weed before, weed wasn't even really psychedelic to me before mushrooms. It just kind of like maybe like goofy and giggly or whatever. Mm-hmm. And at 30 years old, to make it that far through my life, to do a full on insane ego death trip worth of mushrooms, like totally broke my fucking mind for a solid 12 months. Like I had a wow. lot of problems. I had death anxiety. I got weird mini like micro bouts of like depression and GAD, like these mental issues I've never had in my entire life before. Uh, I developed panic attacks at random. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never had a panic attack. In my life. I haven't thank God enough for like three years, but up to 30, I'd never had a panic attack in my life. Even through highly stressful, I just don't, I don't even know what it was like. And then I just started randomly getting them. So it took a long time for my mind to like, recongeal and settle and come back together because that's a really dramatic thing to experience uh not even knowing that that whole world exists i can't believe there are a lot of people that don't know that like psychedelic experiences exist when it's like such a crazy thing that is right there you just need to like eat a mushroom to get there you know <laughs> well yeah hopefully not 10 and a half grams because yeah. i mean no wonder i mean yeah, yeah. that that would have uh, two, put two me off is good. forever first try i would recommend two for people because sometimes people listen just to be responsible two grams is a really good way to just like ease into it you might not have a trip but you'll definitely see and feel things two is good and then 3.5 for like a full trip is like really good an eighth of an ounce i think is yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and setting of course which is like who who are you with i've been fortunate enough to do it with professionals but like mm-hmm. are you with friends that you trust do you are these friends going to fuck with you if you start to see you know like that's that's kind of an important thing yeah. because if you're not you know is there someone there who you trust that will not fuck with you that will take care of you if you're feeling scared or at the very least reassure you that it's going to be okay mm-hmm. uh that can have a, a very very positive or negative impact if it's not handled in, in sure. the right way so you know mm-hmm. there's your there's your psa um one of the things that i wanted to ask about and of course i could go on mushrooms forever but um we i mentioned your son how old Mm -hmm. is your son right now 11 years old 11 so he's getting to that age and now we can take it uh back to everybody he's getting to that age where like girls might start to become a thing what Uh, yeah sorry (laughs) there's all sorts of weird dude we had a thing recently i didn't even know what the answer was and i'm like the internet guy and it was so weird so we found out i need to I'll do this for this podcast, but I really need to think like how much do I want to share about my mm-hmm. son's life online because he's like an adult. He's like getting he's not an adult. He's yeah, going to yeah. do a real person. It's kind of weird to share, it, but like um, the, basically the abbreviated version was he was having conversations with a girl online. Um, 
uh, and they were getting pretty personal. And my thing, uh, especially as like a little e-celeb, is like, we got to make sure you're not getting catfished. Mm. Um, and I had no idea how to tell him how to figure <laughs> that out. Because for me, if a girl messages me, my first question is like, okay, hold on. How old are you? Because if you're under 18, we're not talking. Okay. Number one is how old are you? And the second is like, okay, well, I need to make sure you're a real person. I need like a picture of you or I need to see like an Instagram history. Like I need to see that you're like a real life person. You're not like a random dude trying to like do weird stuff with me or whatever. Um, but for like 11 year olds, I, you can't really do that. They don't have Instagrams. Get Asking for photo. pictures of yeah. people is kind of weird. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I still don't have the solution. I don't know what the answer that was. I just told Nathan that, uh, yeah, you know, your mom might go through your phone sometimes. She might ask me questions. She might go through stuff to figure out what's going on. But like, be careful. Don't send anything you don't want on the internet because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, yeah, the navigating those things today is a, person is really difficult and then i think back to my childhood and because i'm a guy or because i'm autistic maybe it didn't matter as much i talked to i talked to hella pedophiles on the internet <laughs> when i was growing up but it was just like funny for me but like i remember having like phone sex with a woman that was like 35 years old when i think oh, i was gosh. like 14 um, and i thought at the time i thought it was really cool and i was like retrospectively uh probably not the best thing probably not good but yeah i'm like damn back then i didn't care but the um yeah, that's a, the internet is a scary world. And you, you either like develop this intuitive sense of like how to navigate in a safe way or you make like mistakes that maybe, you know, ruin the rest of your life, I guess. I don't know. But do you so I, I just I don't sounds like no. Do you think that had any sort of adverse effect on you? Like the, the, <laughs> the 14 year old talking to a 35 year old on the phone? I mean, I'm sure it sex? probably did. I, I'm sure it all. Yeah, I the person I developed, I think that my life has been like falling into better things like well, it was falling into really bad things and then falling into really good things. I got really lucky in like my my development, I guess. Like mm -hmm. I grew up where my parents were very busy. Uh, so maybe I was like a little bit neglected, but like as a result of that, I got to play lots of games. Nobody bothered with me. I grew up very independent. Um, I didn't need my parents to come to my band concerts or whatever because I played music because I enjoyed it. I was very self-driven. Um, I got a lot of like technology experience. Like I was able to figure out streaming very early on um, because of how much i knew about like software stuff uh like so all of it kind of worked out in the end for me because of where i was but i mean i guess if streaming wouldn't have existed and i would have been stuck carpet cleaning i'd probably be giving you the opposite story right now that my life yeah, sucked and it all so turned from that 14 year old phone sex. yeah maybe, that was the uh, day that it went south mm -hmm. um well okay so one what well, it just occurred to me while you're saying that we don't have to go deep into this but the the experience of loneliness that you had on psilocybin uh, i i connect everything to parents, but that's sort of how you might have described your childhood as being sort of separate and not having those human connections and leaning into games. Um, I, I had human connections, just not family ones. I had Got like, because uh, I, I made friends online and stuff that were important to me. Mm. Um, so I, I don't think I ever felt, I've never felt like lonely. I, I have like a very narrow or a very limited social circle. Like I don't talk to, I don't need to share a lot with people just because that's the kind of person I am. Um, but they're there if I need to. And and there are some people. I'm never truly alone. I don't think I could exist truly alone. I would go, like, I mean, like, I'll tell you about, like, how, oh, I'm, like, a lone wolf and blah, 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 blah. But, like, since the age of 17, I've been in relationships my whole life. I don't think I've been single for more than, like, a month or two. Um, so, like, obviously, like, having at least one person in my life is pretty important to me, I guess, go, going by my track record. So, Got it. Got it. So, let's um let's take that. Your son. Uh, what do you, well, one, I mean, what you're making me realize is that I think this is the plight of every parent, which is, you were just like not prepared to teach your kid about the world that they're coming into. Cause it wasn't the world that you grew up in where you're 11 years old and this is, and having to worry about like, is this a catfish? The phrase didn't sure. even exist. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, you know, not necessarily 11, 16, 17, 18 as well. What do you advise young men? And well, this is two questions. You mentioned that the red pill guys think that the fall of Western civilization is because women have something. 
Um, do you think that we're at at all a special moment in male-female relationships, or are they always kind of fraught, and consent is, has always been unclear, or, or, or have things devolved in any sort of way? I mean, I think every moment in our lives always feels like the most important moment in history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it probably continues to be true. I'm sure there are some unique things. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there are some unique things that are existing now, like the internet, but, the, you know, there's always been special problems presented to people. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have any. Yeah, nothing, nothing. It's not, it's not a unique, that's, that my instinct is, yeah, I look around the world, my initial reaction is, oh my God, misogyny is the worst thing in the, you know, like mm-hmm. th- these male-female relations are completely fraying and it could be the end. And I actually have a friend who was writing a book called Mating Crisis, which, which takes not that hyperbolic of a belief, but the belief that uh, the declining birth rate is a serious problem in these advanced nations, and it's occurring for all of these sorts of reasons. Uh, but I tend to agree with you in that everything feels more intense than it is, right? It's mm-hmm. always the worst moment in human history, and then you look back at World War II, kind of sucked more. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so what? what is going on with this consent thing? I don't know. This You saw the Atrioc story that sort of came yeah. out. Yeah, so, Okay. <sighs> There were a couple things. I very much can empathize, not empathize, sympathize, I suppose, with the women who <laughs> have, yeah, I can't empathize because that, that I, I don't know what that would even be like, but it would fucking suck uh-huh. to have those images of you, to receive them, to have them sent to your family, et cetera. Some of the takes I thought were a little underdeveloped. So for instance, Pokemon was like, don't sexualize people without their consent. And- it seems like sexualization primarily occurs in the perception of someone. So I don't know how that would happen without uh, thought policing. I'm curious if you've thought of this, like what, what the hell do we do with deep fakes? How do we deal with this consent that is now uh, where your imagination is able to be made into an image? Uh, have, you, have you thought at all about this or do you have any sort of insight? Yeah. Firstly, all of these conversations are cancer because it's all like devolved and like don't rape and don't be misogynistic. And like, that's it. Nobody's like really having an in-depth conversation about anything. Um, Something that I like to look at is I I, I use two terms. I use sexualization and I use objectification. Mm -hmm. So sexualizing is when you view something as like sexual. That could be like masturbating to it. It could be imagining something, whatever, whatever the fuck. I don't think there's any problem with doing that to anybody. Knock yourself out, sexualize things as much as you want. I don't think that's a problem. Objectification occurs, in my mind, objectification occurs when you make your sexualization of somebody their problem. So if I see a hot girl at the gym, I'm like, damn, she's fucking hot. I like that. Like, that's fine. But if I walk up to her and I start like hitting on her or being really obnoxious, well, that's not okay because I've gone from sexualizing her to treating her like a sexual object. I'm like objectifying her. So I think sexualizing anybody you want is okay. Just don't like be creepy or weird about it. Don't like make them aware of it. Don't make it their problem and don't act on that in a way that the other person wouldn't want you to. So there's a thread of online red pill that says that creepy is a, is a, is a sexual advance that is just from a man who is undesirable. So like how do, if, if that is the case, which maybe you don't think it is, mm-hmm. how, is there better is, or more actionable advice than don't be creepy for those guys who don't know how to, to engage without, uh, triggering that creepy response? Yeah. This is something I'm working on. Come back to me in like fucking in June and I'll have like a better answer to this, but I need to, the problem is, is. I'm pretty sure you probably develop a lot of your socialization skills probably by the time you're like 14 or 15. And then you kind of like iterate and refine on them going through high school and college. But like if you're getting a guy that's like 22 and they're asking you like, how do I not be creepy? 
Like, I, bro, I don't know. Like, I can tell. I think if you're a socially uh, adept person, you can tell immediately if it's creepy or not, right? If I go up to a girl and I say a couple things and she kind of like glances at the side or she's got like the laser vision where she's just like looking on her phone and not talking to me, like I immediately like, okay, this person does not want to talk to me. Like, I'm, like, I'm cringing at myself and you walk away. Um, but I've seen other guys that will lean into those conversations so hard and it's like, bro, do you not see how fucking awkward this is right now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to coach somebody on like how to not be creepy. I feel like there is a... Um, there's a bubble of awareness that you can have about how other people think or feel. And if you have that, it helps you socially. And if you haven't developed that, you're gonna be lost at sea. Like I can tell pretty reasonably, like how how good of a time is the person I'm with having right now? How do they feel about me? How do they feel about themselves? How do they feel about the night? This conversation I'm having, the stranger at the gym, like I have a pretty good intuitive sense um, of like how they feel. I can talk about their body language towards me. Are they receptive? Are they laughing? Are they making eye contact? Or are they kind of like, cutting me off are they or are they being like very short very curt kind of like looking at their phone the whole time not making eye contact trying to like move around right versus somebody that's like trying to stay in your but like there are, but I, I can't give you like a list of these like yeah, here's yeah. like 15 sites right it's just like a developed intuitive sense of like being around other bodies and being around other people and kind of figuring out like this person likes me this person probably doesn't like me very much um i don't know how to sell that to somebody in like a yeah in like a two minute blurb of like this is how you learn how to not be creepy you're, you're making um, yeah. me realize, I mean, so I, I, I've got this channel, Charisma on Command. I did coaching. It started related oh, to shit. dating. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and no, so, so I mean, you're, you're actually just, uh, I realized that I actually had that highly developed. It was hair trigger sensitive to the degree where I was so shy. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I was always, oh, I've creeped him out. Like, I, I didn't want to talk to anybody because there was that fear. And the people who I was able to help were people like me who came with perhaps an oversensitive you know, and it's like, look, you can, you can hang in there a little bit longer. You could say hi. Like, they're, they're not immediately wanting to get rid of you. Uh, the people that I struggled with were the people that you're describing who did not have that and would just creep people out. And I did mm-hmm. not know how to communicate to them. You got to get out of there. <laughs> like this is not this is not going well. You are bothering this person. And it was it was actually it made me change the business and change who we focused on because I found that 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 what you're describing, if you did not come with some sort of intuitive sense some baseline intuitive sense and we were instead working on shyness and overcoming that and being more confident mm-hmm. it was impossible for me at least to help you and i don't have the answer to uh for some of those guys who have been left behind which i think yeah. is a shame because we, we like you said we can't leave people behind just the same way we can't leave the homeless people you leave this huge cohort of guys behind or even a small cohort it becomes a problem mm-hmm. the it's there are things that we do um that become automated processes and we don't realize how complicated they are like mm-hmm walking is an incredibly complicated interaction between so many different your proprioception of where your limbs are um the balance that exists inside your inner ear uh, all of these different muscle groups that are coordinating it's like walking is you're not actually dragging anything you are you're falling forward and catching yourself while lifting your back foot at the same time and you're doing all of this if you were to try to explain to somebody like how to walk yeah, it's actually incredibly complicated. It wouldn't surprise me if there's more than like sixty or seventy different muscles um, from from your toes to your shoulders in terms of like how do you actually walk. Um, so like you either learn to walk and you do it and you coordinate all of it, or you can't. And then trying to explain that from the ground up is so complicated. And yeah, I just I I I, I want to think about this more because I don't like that I don't have a good answer. Because the red pill guys will talk all day about like, oh you need to do this and blah. And it's like bullshit. I don't think that works. Um, mm-hmm. But if I don't have an answer, I mean, why would you listen to me on it? Yeah, I don't know. I'll try to figure this out more. But I, yeah, I don't have a good answer. I just know that 
when, when I'm talking to people, I'm never thinking like, okay, I need to ask these four questions. I need to make sure that I maintain enough eye contact, but not too much that it's creepy. Um, I need to laugh and touch your shoulder. I'm never thinking of that. All of it is like incredibly intuitive to where like, if you ask me like, how does this person feel like, oh, I think she's having a really good time. She likes my jokes. I'm paying attention. I've asked her really interesting questions. Like I just have like a, a back and forth that I feel very intuitively. And yeah, yeah that's not sad. That's, that's a shitty answer to anybody. Oh, you just got to feel it out, dude. Be yourself. Like that doesn't work. Cause if that worked, obviously they wouldn't be coming to you for fucking advice. Because, you know? <laughs> well, what, yeah. what, what I was luckily able to do, I mean, you're like, I never thought of those. Like, oh shit, I fucking did. <laughs> that was, oh, no, sure, I was, sure. I wasn't that in my head, mm-hmm. but what I was able to do was I think I had a baseline of intuitive human understanding, but it was underdeveloped and mm-hmm. I had to think of one thing that I was going to do in conversation. It could only be one thing. If it ever became more than like, hey, I'm going to do this, 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 and then it became totally robotic and you lost that connection. But in terms of just moving one thing at a time, which is, I don't know, you're making shitty eye contact, like stop looking at your feet mm-hmm. or like make sure to uh, stay in conversation with that barista or that Uber driver for one sentence longer than you feel comfortable for because otherwise you'll just run away at the first sign of silence yeah. in a conversation. Like those little things over time worked very well for me and I think they work well for our audience, but yeah, I have mm-hmm. not been able to do the person that was starting from like, I don't get it at all. Sure. I cannot feel what's going on here. Yeah. What you're saying, I mean, sounds like how you would train a- any skill. That sounds correct. Mm-hmm. You would, you're not going to take a creep and turn them into a fucking suave, you know, seduction artist one, you know, one time it's going to be with like, take a small fucking thing. Um, and then like ingrain that so deep into yourself that you don't have to think about that, that thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And then we'll give you like another strategy, right? Yeah. Stop talking yeah. so fucking much in a conversation <laughs> and let the other person answer a question, right? Don't try to cut them off. Like focus on that for like three conversations. And then the next one, you know, practice complimenting something that's not creepy, right? Compliment something that somebody put effort into, not a body feature, right? So like your hair looks really nice is a lot different than like you have nice eyes, right? Or your dress, dresses are like cheat codes for women. Anytime a woman wears a dress, you can always say, oh my God, that's such a cute dress. And every woman will like it no matter what, because they don't usually wear dresses, like stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Build, building like little things like that into your repertoire and then practice them until they become um, second nature. So you don't have to think about them because I would imagine at this point, or I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that when you talk to people, you're probably not going through all these checklists no. now because you already did all that. And now it's just kind of like part of how you interact with somebody, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, and, and now it, it truly is, it is, the cliche advice of be yourself is what I tell myself most yeah, often. But like that's because sh- you've crafted yourself. Exactly. Into, yeah, and it's, and it's yeah. for whom am I giving advice? And it's like, because be yourself is the most obnoxious, shitty advice that you can offer to someone who is really struggling. Exactly, yeah. But it's also the most deeply true. <laughs> sure. And so and so I feel like, you know, I have tried, I will, I will not take down the old videos, even though I might not give some of the same advice now, because mm-hmm. I recognize that they are for a certain person at a certain time in their life. Though if you ask me today, I'm likely to say, take deep breaths, sit quietly with yourself, see if you can still your mind and be, you know, but that's just not useful to somebody at the beginning of their journey. Sure. Um, so you mentioned red pill. I mentioned red pill a couple of times. It, uh, would love to just touch on this. One of the things that I, a big moment that I enjoyed from your fresh and fit conversation with uh, the guys was the 40%, uh, the 40%. <laughs> Listen, man, dude, my summer made so many memes. There were pictures of like 50 planes like taking off from an airport and like spring break, all the women flying to Dubai or whatever. So it was, it was, you asked one of the hosts whose name I don't know. Um, fresh. Fresh. You were talking about how many women uh, take, you know, are paid to go take boat trips with these men. Uh, uh-huh. And you're like, how many women from college? What or percentage whatever? of women? What percentage? Wait, what percentage of college girls being flown out to Dubai? Yeah. And he said 40%. And it was just like, oh my God, how do we continue this conversation at this point, given that we live in different worlds? It actually caused me to reflect. What I realized is that people enforce a selection bias 
onto those that they interact with. People that won't tolerate them get the fuck out of there. And, you know, you go to a Miami club, perhaps it feels like, and maybe is true that 40% of the women there have been on a boat at some point. So I, I don't, I think to his experience, that number is far closer, even though it is not representative of women in general of that age group in the United States of America. Uh, and one of the things I think that this is, this is, I guess, what a rabbit hole is, is when you fall so deeply into a group of people, whether it's Miami Club Girls or Croatia Yacht Week Girls or whatever, that you start making generalizations about women based on what seems to be the way that that type of person operates. And that seems mm -hmm. like what so much of the red pill is about. You know, they're always looking to trade up. They're always looking to do this. And I, I have had some of those beliefs in myself busted as I have become a different person and allowed and attracted different types of women into my life that wouldn't be caught at that club, that wouldn't cheat on their boyfriend with a superstar athlete that, you know, whatever, for religious reasons or just personal shame or just not mm -hmm. being interested. Uh, and, it's unfortunate because I understand and have been adjacent to that world how believable that shit is when you are deeply ensconced and involved in it and how someone who comes from the outside is like, that's not true. It's like, well, that guy has never been to the club. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. He, yeah. he, he hasn't had sex with the women that I've had sex with because they are exactly. all like this. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a lot of reactions in watching that. That was just one. It's incredibly important to ask those gauging questions. I try to do this now with everybody that I talk to because it gives me a good sense of where you're at. And if you've, on, a, on, a, on an intellectual level, it'll tell me, like, have you actually studied any of this topic? And then on, a, on an emotional level, it tells me how bought in you are to a particular thing. So how much work do I have to do? Um, I thought it was incredibly telling that, uh, I, so earlier I gave the example of like a, a really strong BLM supporter asking them, how many unarmed black men a year do you think are killed by the mm -hmm. cops? And hearing them say like thousands, probably thousands, 5,000, 6,000 or whatever, it's like, okay, you're, you're two orders of magnitude off. You're so unbelievably wrong on this. Um, and, and I understand why you feel the way because like if 10,000 black men were dying every year to the police officers, mm -hmm. that would be crazy. That would be insane. You should be that mad. Um, when, when Matt Walsh was asked on Joe Rogan, how many children are going through, it was either trans surgeries or just taking like trans drugs. How many children, how many minors in the United States is affecting? His answer was millions. Mm -hmm. And I think Joe Rogan looked up on the show and the answer was like, it was like 5,000 over the past like eight years. Wow. It was, uh, was that four orders of magnitude off? And it's like, how if your your worldview is so warped that it's going to that warped worldview is going to start to inform so many other opinions you have that if you can't like go to the root of that and like readjust how you view the world yeah you're going to be completely lost when it comes to talking about almost any topic mm -hmm. and and you know red pill or matt walsh or whatever the those or or you know cops it says more about you, not in a good or a bad way, than it does about the world in general when you when you start to believe those things that are verifiably so disconnected from what the average population says. It tells you more about how you're selecting for that, you know, Matt Walsh, you are hanging out in communities where this is the most important thing and needs to be viewed every day. Same thing with if you're looking at the red pill guys or whatever, you're hanging out in a group of girls for whom this is true. And this tells me so much more about you than it does about women. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, you know, one of the things that I, I get frustrated with with Red Pill is that there's this general idea that, um, which, and I understand the underpinning behind it and have at times, you know, leaned on it in arguments, which is like, men are rational, women are emotional. Mm -hmm. But the, the basic underpinning of Red Pill is an obsession with if women like you, which seems like the most irrational 
way to do, like to take these irrational creatures that you do not need to survive or whatever and make your career, your hobby, your conversational topic, how to get more of them to be more interested in you seems so deeply irrational, but is not explored uh, in the Red Pill community. Yeah, so I get, I, ha- I just have my own frustrations in watching mm-hmm. this, and I, I thought that you uh, comported yourself well in those conversations given <laughs> some of the, yeah. the, the difficulties. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, with the Sneeko stuff, I wanted to ask, um, it seemed like uh, Sneeko is a, is a content creator who was canceled, I think, recently, right? He got sort of shut <laughs> down got, for some yeah. of the stuff that he said. Wiped off the internet, yeah. And uh, I, I was familiar with his content a uh, year, two years ago, whatever, enjoyed watching it from time to time. And he, it seems that this being shut out of uh, or pushed away, I, I suppose, from like the mainstream view of things, from being sincerely, privately, and personally attacked by these uh, companies that are shutting him down, mm-hmm. has moved his perspective way farther in connection with those other canceled groups of people. So he hung out with Kanye yeah. West, he's with Andrew Tate. And it seems like this culture of shutting people out of the conversation so that they just go away has the same effect that repressing a memory does, which is you think that it's gone, you think it's going away, but really it's just like fomenting underneath the surface, pissed off, angry, and more uh, more scheming and trying to get back in and, and more dangerous than it was in the first place. I, I, do you see it unfolding like that? How do you feel about these cancellations that are occurring? Uh, yeah, do they things. work? Don't they work? Yeah, I don't think I don't think you can cancel ideas. I think you can get rid of people, but I think mm-hmm. like if the underlying conditions that made that person popular are still there, you're probably still going to have that like strain of thought. You have to be able to figure out like why. Like Andrew Tate is kind of a deplorable guy in my opinion, but if a lot of people are looking to him as a role model, you need to figure out why. What's going on? Something is broken in your system if you can't get people to to follow you over a guy like that. Something is going on there. Um, and then the what, what do you think is going on there, by the way? Because uh, I'm curious if you have a, a theory on yeah, that. Yeah, I think people on the left are just, they do a really bad job at attacking majority groups and just making them feel like shit over and over and over again. You know, fuck men, all men are rapists. Uh, you know, white people, whites, you know, we need the white genocide. We need the Mayo side. We need to, uh, you know, champion minorities and everything is about slavery and everything is about white people are horrible, blah, 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 blah. Like, if you repeat this type of rhetoric over and over again, at some point, you know, white people and men, you know, they're not gods. Uh, they're going to start to feel pretty shitty. Like, okay, well, if you're just going to, you know, chastise us and castigate us and, you know, demonize us constantly, well, we're going to listen to somebody that doesn't. And I think that's kind of what happened. I think the left, like, felt like they didn't need to provide good role models or good leadership for majority groups. So they started to look towards other people that tend to be on the right. Yeah. It seems like also with Andrew Tate, you know, one of the things that pisses me off is like Andrew Tate, who got famous for his misogyny. Like, I think what Andrew Tate got famous for is that people are not teaching young men how to relate to girls in a way that they're satisfied with. Um, And even though it's uh, some of the stuff I certainly disagree with, I mean, I relate to this as when I was growing up, like I did not know how to get women to be attracted to me. And then Mm -hmm. I encountered, you know, the early underpinnings of Red Pill, which was the game or whatever. And you get this line and I will not forget the first time that I was in a bar, you know, we, we were 20 years old in London didn't know what to say, used a line from the game, and we got smiles. And I was like, holy shit, this is my, this is it. This is the truth in the Bible. And I was willing for a period, though I, I think I quickly corrected it, to accept much more wholesale whatever it said because it had busted open my worldview and provided me something that worked. Uh-huh. And I feel like that might be going on with Andrew Tate as well, where he tells you some of the things you could do with girls, ways to be confident, whatever. One of those works with a girl in your class or your school or your workplace or whatever. And you're way willing to go, well, fuck, nobody taught me this for the last 18 years. 
I'm going to let all of this in because you guys, you guys didn't give me this. You guys gave me, when I grew up, it was can't hardly wait where what you had to do was write a note about the girl that you love, let her find it. She would discover that you'd been stalking her for four years and fall deeply in love with you. It was just like, the, I mean, do you remember that movie or any of those like that? Like, nope. where the, okay. There were these tropes in these movies where the, what the Jennifer Love Hewitt loved was the creepy guy who stalked her and had like a diorama and pictures of her that she would uncover in the end of the second act, the beginning of the third act. Oh, sure. I mean, I've realized seen, like, that he was stalking her. Right? Yeah, yeah. Realized yeah. That he was stalking her and that was love. You mm-hmm. know, like the guy wrote and, one letter a day for a whole year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Bro, yeah. Bro, get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, that it's not the advice that young men are getting, the way that they're learning to rent it for a lot of them is just not working. And that's where I see Andrew Tate having a real foothold, is that his stuff works for men in a way that what they're getting isn't. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> I think that that's a subsection of a larger thing, which is uh, a refusal to acknowledge reality sometimes mm-hmm. like people on the right will say things like men and women are different and people on the left are like no no they're exactly the same and it's like we all have similar experiences with moms and dads we all have similar experiences with brothers and sisters and we all can very clearly see at a very early age that boys and girls and um, young women and young men and men and women seem to function pretty differently and I think a lot of people on the left are so obsessed with like the systemic analyses and they're trying to not come off as like trying to be very woke, not coming off as racist, not coming off as sex, whatever. They don't want to acknowledge any difference in anything ever. And when people on the right are willing to make that acknowledgement, yeah, I think similar to how somebody gives you a piece of advice you've never heard before that works. When somebody makes an analysis of the world that is true and someone else seems to be delusional, you're like, okay, well, if you're going to say this crazy stuff, I'm not going to listen to you at all because you don't seem to seem like you want to acknowledge reality, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gaming. What's your favorite JRPG? Um, my heart pulls in two directions. It's either Final Fantasy VII or Final Fantasy Tactics. Mm, love both. Uh, did you well, play any? For you. Hold on. I like Seek It in Two. I love the base building. Did you ever play that one? I did not. No. Wait, okay. how old are you? I'm 35. I, okay. Yeah. So this was. I was like fucking deep into nerdy games. I love my Final Fantasy VII. That was almost mainstream for me, though. Well, I was yeah, in- I gotta say, if you're playing games like Sigurdin, <laughs> Sigurdin 2, you're, yeah, you're probably more into this, yeah. Yeah, but Tactics I loved. Um, yeah, man, I played that probably 10 times uh, just for the... I mean, I, I enjoyed the, the gameplay, but I was always in it for the story, and I, I heard you talk mm-hmm. about the characters. That was a similar connecting thing for, for me as well. I'm actually making a... Uh, you know, Charisma on Command has worked well, has paid for my life, uh, but I've taken that, the proceeds from that, I'm making a Dungeons and Dragons show. So me and my friends oh. dress up. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> cool. Like total dorks and talking accents. And uh, yeah, it's I been just a- finished a two year D&D campaign. So yeah, oh, no a shit. second edition one. So yeah, Jesus. Yeah. Second edition. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Okay. So you're, le- you're like a long time. The ultra hardcore, gamer. like if you're hitting the guy, like we need to account for 15 different Fact. things. That's going to yeah. yeah, everything. <laughs> oh yeah, Jesus. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, do you play? 5e um i have before i think i prefer 5e to 2e but there's a lot of stuff going on i like a lot of the simplifications in 5e Mm -hmm. um 2e is really fun if you want to get into the like fucking like i brought my friend who just graduated from like uh uh, new york university or whatever fucking columbia law and he's going to argue why when i hit this guy i should have like a plus (laughs) six to hit instead of a plus four okay i'm on the higher stair yeah like 2E is fun for those types of like really crazy arguments. 5E is fun because it's like very quick and easy. And I think one of the most painful things for me is very slow combat. Like if we're in combat, I kind of wanted to, yeah, the drama and everything is lost when you're spending like 10 minutes on a turn trying to calculate every single bonus from every single, yeah. But um, yeah, so I think 5E does a decent job at that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure like there are things I like from 2E. There are things I like from 5E. Uh, Yeah, it just depends, yeah. 
got it. I wasn't around the two-wee days. I played some of the other tabletops and then re-got into it for COVID. So I don't know all of the rules of it. But I've, I totally agree with you on combat. I, have you? Are you familiar with Critical Role? I mean, you're, you were a Twitch streamer for a long time. I imagine um, that you like. Yeah, I've heard them. The really big, like, professional D and D setup. Yeah. Out. So, um, little pet theory of mine. One, I just love story. But uh, mm-hmm. they had a Kickstarter for like twenty six million dollars to get their show on Amazon. That was before Jesus. Amazon paid them for the money. So, like, okay. this community that they've built is easily worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And yeah. I think that the future, and this is, I actually think this with you as well on your own political sphere, whatever you want to do, the people who can maintain attention for eight hours on stream, whether they're uh-huh. playing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, are wildly under monetized today. I don't know what the future <laughs> is going to hold, just wildly. Like sure. you're, even as I see you breaking into shorts and onto YouTube, uh-huh. like first off, your editor deserves kudos, man. He does a great job. Uh, yeah, the does. intros are fucking awesome. The timestamps are one of the only ways that I can deal with two and a half hour things because there's usually five, six minutes that I want to watch. He's uh-huh. fucking great. Um, but you have so much content, so much trust, so much influence, and so much clout. And I, not that you need to because money is not the end all be all, but you are wildly under monetized. Um, so anyway, Critical Role did this. I was inspired by it. We started the show and we are doing it uh, pretty high production value. We've got like 3D graphics and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Unreal Engine scenes acting out what we're doing. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm just excited about no, it. You're good. <laughs> yeah, it's fun if you can get it. Um, there are things you have to do to make the show presentable um because yeah because you want people to be excited to watch everything yeah but if you if you get it all set up correctly like yeah that's cool yeah yeah so we'll we'll fingers crossed have that going Mm -hmm. um how many people are you going to run the campaign with so we've got and these this was all under under we have four people in the campaign which i think Mm -hmm. allows for a bit more engagement we've got a very very good dungeon master and um we cut i mean it is it is multiple months of post-production to cut the bullshit I mean, I'm cutting turns out of combat. I'm cutting, like, if I roll the dice and there's three seconds before we add up, it's fucking gone. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it is still slower than a movie, obviously, but it winds up being a much more engaging experience Mm -hmm. than the two and a half hour long combats that you're going to get, which can be done in 30 or 40 minutes. Or less, depending on how much bullshit you're cutting out. Yeah, exactly. Cool, cool. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, no no time soak uh, bosses or anything like that that we discussed that with the the DM, but Mm -hmm. fingers crossed on that. I'm, I'm super excited about it. Um, so God, there's so many things that I want to touch on. What do do you have? Do you have goals, uh, going forward for like, I mean, you're, you, you've got your games, you've got your streams, you're making good money. Do you see if, uh, a future Um, beyond this that is qualitatively different or it's just more of what you're doing? Wait a second. Hold on. Could you answer sure. the favorite JRPG question? Was oh, it yes. Second and two? Yeah. Second and two? That yes. was your favorite? Yes. What was that? What system was that available on? That was on PlayStation. Interesting. Okay. Sorry. You missed okay. that one. No, that one was fucking great. Uh, base was, building, it was Konami. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Uh, yes. Did you like the Metal Gear Solid games? I did. Yeah. I was, I mean, the, what I'll always remember is the moment that you switched the uh, controller to the second port when you're. For Psycho Mantis. For Psycho Mantis. That was yeah. fucking incredible. <laughs> <laughs> did you play through all of um like th- one two three four five? Of uh, no, I didn't play all the Metal Gears. No, I did. One oh no, no, I'm sorry, and- not Metal Gears. F- screw them. I'm in Metal Gear Solid one two three four and five. Like up through the Phantom Pain was the last one that came out. No, I haven't played Phantom Pain. I, oh, okay. I didn't do those. Um, I've heard that one is highly rated. Those those more action oriented games I liked, but I actually liked the ones where the combat was stopped. I think I was just like hyper. Turn base. Yeah, turn-based combat. I think I was just nervous. And like when I would get caught in Metal Gear, it created anxiety in me. Oh, sure, <laughs> I was sure. like, I can't, I can't handle this. I hit in my box the whole time. I was huge into, um, do you ever emulate games? 
Um, I I did for because I wanted to play through Final Fantasy VI, but um, yeah. not yes. too much. Yeah. So I mean, I did the emulation of Final Fantasy VI in order to play it. That was fucking great, and uh, that was the peak of my connectedness with technology. Was figuring out how to take Japanese RPGs that hadn't been released in America, applying the English patch, and playing that on on uh, the computer. So gotcha. Okay, I just are, wanted to answer that. Sorry. Okay, gotcha. Sure. Um. So with in terms of your goals, like mm-hmm. given what we, I sort of mentioned, do you see that for yourself? Or are you just like, you know, letting things unfold and happen? Is there a broader plan or somewhere at which you're aimed? Yeah, I want to, um, <coughs> my goal, listen, I, there's a game called Factorio and I downloaded yep. a mod pack for it and I made a big mistake. I knew I should have. I said for years, I never would. And I did it. And I've spent probably six months mm-hmm. and I think tonight I'm finishing it. <laughs> so once that's done, cause I, I have a very obsessive mind. If I'm working on something, it's kind of all I can think about. And I'll be mm-hmm. like on vacations, playing on my laptop. I'll be like at night playing it when I come from the gym. I'll be like, oh, I'm always like playing this fucking thing until I finish it. Once I finish that, um, I want to focus more on doing like a year of really heavy politics. So mm-hmm. I want to be like really well read, really well researched and like hardcore engaging with a lot of different communities because I've built the foundation for that over the past like six or seven years of political content. And I think I'm positioned right now to probably do it better than I think anybody that I know on the internet because I have I have a lot of inroads to a lot of conservative communities. I'm very much not a conservative person. And I think I have a unique penchant for wanting to do a lot of research and stuff on stream that I find that like people really enjoy watching. And yeah, that combination of things is just super fun. And I want to pursue that a lot more seriously this year. Do you think that you'll ever run for office? Absolutely not. But you would get behind someone. I know that you were involved in some sort of, uh, I believe, a Nebraska-like mm-hmm. candidate. Yeah, I would back people, but the money is way too good here. And I think I'm better served. I would tell somebody to kill themselves in a presidential debate, and I would never get anywhere near a <laughs> stage again. They're just quitting <laughs> I don't think I can handle that. But um, All the good candidates would, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Do, but do you see yourself... Um, I mean, I, I, I see this. I see your influence growing and you having an important voice, maybe not determinative, but increasingly over time and like who wins elections and that sort of thing. Do you see that in your future? I think a lot of influ- – I think we're already there. If the power mm-hmm. is there, but influencers don't want to take it online. Yeah. Um, I did canvassing for Georgia where uh, I told everybody I'd pay for a hotel room for three days. We'd come out and door knock for um, – it wasn't Ossoff and Warnock, right? I think it was just Warnock because I think Ossoff had won like a special election. Or it was just one candidate we did two months ago. I should know because we went in Dornock. <laughs> I think it was just for Warnock. And um, that I got over 300 people to show up and knock on doors. And that was, that was on, I only did one call out because I did one call out. I didn't even put it on my YouTube channel and I got over like 200 signups. And I was like, I don't want to, I'm already spending <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars on this. Mm. I don't want to spend more. Um, but imagine if like Hassan and Vosh yeah. and all these other streamers or even conservative people too, like influences online started to do like door knocking things. Um, you could get so many people. Like, I, like we had, we had as many door knockers. I think in one weekend, I think we knocked, I think it was like 10% of all the doors that had been knocked in the state over the entire campaign wow. thing, including the official stabbers and everything. I, th- I want to say we knocked on, I want to say it was like 20,000 doors in one weekend. And like the whole campaign, everybody had done like 200,000 by the end. Um, if, if, yeah, if YouTubers have started to get together and going after like that very real local political power is so cheap mm-hmm. in terms of time and people investment, yeah. right? Like people think that you need millions of dollars and, you know, like thousands of people to make a change Meanwhile, there is some like stuck up old lady on some fucking that always goes to every fucking city council meeting. Yeah, she she's the reason why. <laughs> she yeah, she's the reason town. why you're never going to get that stoplight. <laughs> you're never going to get that apart. That one lady that goes there because she knows every motherfucker there. There's a really great book by um, uh, Ethan Hirsch. I think it's called um, it's called Politics is for Power. 
Um, and it follows the story of like six different people. Um, Eden Hirsch. Uh, it follows the story of six different people. We're just like random. No, they're not important. They're not special people. Well, five of them are. And it talks about how they gain like political power in their little arenas and oust like some of the sitting political opposition just because they're willing to put a little bit of effort into it. But yeah, bringing back, there's a lot of political power up for grabs. We already have the audience sizes for it. Uh, people just don't want to organize because there's not good like clout involved and you don't make mm -hmm. a lot of money doing it. And people just want to grow their numbers on YouTube. So yeah. Well, the... Also, the resistance to you, like if you're going to get involved in a presidential election, there's millions of dollars backing the opposing candidate. There's all of these pre-existing biases. If you're involved in local politics, it's almost like which way the wind blows, which could be you or could be another political streamer, could have a tremendous impact on which way the votes break. Because I don't think people are nearly as deeply entrenched when it comes to those things. They might not even have thought of going out to vote if it's a midterm election or something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it just depends. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, you'd have to distance yourself. Like I'm, I've got a pretty edgy background, so I'm not going to be like shaking hands with Biden sure. in a picture ever. Um, <laughs> but like, I wouldn't mind like, um, like ballot initiatives. I think would be something really fun to campaign for. You know, mm -hmm. like I really think we should have legalized marijuana Prop, in whatever yeah, states, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, let's do Proposition 48 or whatever. We're going to go out and campaign for this. And yeah, there's not like a name attached to a person, so it's not like as edgy or dangerous. You know, stuff like that. Got it. Cool. I was also told to ask you about meat eating and your position on meat eating. Uh, for the record, I'm, I'm pescatarian. I, I eat fish. Okay. I love eating meat and torturing animals and all the horrible things that vegans commit me to when I say that. So, yeah. Interesting. So what, yeah. So, so forget this, forget the vegans, forget all that. What is your, do you, have you thought morally about uh, meat eating and, and is, is it informed or is it just what you like the taste of? Um, there is a, a whole line of argumentation down there, depending mm. on <laughs> the, um, the, the basically vegans start from a point of we ought to value sentient life. I typically start from the point of we ought to value human sentient life. People will ask me why humans versus all sentient life. And I'll say, well, I think the human consciousness experience is something unique that we ought to protect, but it's kind of arbitrary because it's very foundational. And they'll say, well, I think we should protect all life. And I'll say, well, why? And they'll go, well, because suffering is bad. And it's like, why is it but the suffering of what things is bad? And it's like, well, why? And you, you start to ground out in these areas that are like fundamentally unknowable or outside of like human knowledge. Um, yeah. So I, I, that's, that's why I'm a meter. The, the, the ethical arguments get like very, very into the weeds on, on like uh, epistemics and, and ethics in, in terms of like, like, how do we figure out exactly, you know, where our foundational belief is here for our, all mm -hmm. of our ethical beliefs. Um, but where, where I'm at is I'm a meat eater, but mm -hmm. I'm a consistent meat eater, okay? I think that um, I think that most people on this planet, based on where their ethical intuitions lie, should probably be uh, vegetarians. I think mm -hmm. um, the usually what I get the most fun out of is anytime like an animal gets like tortured or killed, like Cecil the lion or that uh, the gorilla that got shot. Harambe, the kid. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whenever shit like this happens, I will relentlessly make fun of meat eaters that get super emotionally invested and involved and get like cry or whatever. When like between like snarfing down, you know, mouthfuls of chicken nuggets and cheeseburgers of animals that are being factory farmed and stuff, I think it's incredibly hypocritical. Mm. Um, if you care about stuff like your dog or your cat and all this, probably you shouldn't be like a meat eater. If you if it like morally bothers you if people eat like cats or dogs, but you think it's okay to eat cows or pigs or whatever, but yeah, that's a whole other. <laughs> Got it. So yeah. do you, you mentioned that your ground is human, human sentience. Um, is mm -hmm. that a reasoned position or is that a, um, is that just an intuitive moral position where you like, you don't <laughs> feel a connection to animals? Mm -hmm. I think at some point we're going to have to say that it's intuitive, but I, I mean mm -hmm. like the, the, the rationale, I guess, is that like, I feel like human conscious experiences, there's a lot of parts of these that are incredibly unique that only exist insofar as like human experiences go. So like comprehension of language not just like speaking a word and having a reaction, but like the entire, um, there, there's an entire 
cognition that goes into understanding language that like only humans understand. So for instance, like I don't, animals can't understand negatives, for instance. Like if I tell you, um, your mom is not in that room, that has like semantic meaning to you. You understand that. Um, but an animal can't understand a negative or they can't understand like being able to describe something else in another time or place. They have like more like complicated systems of like Pavlovian responses, essentially, right? Like if I, if I bark, I could tell you there's like danger or food, but I couldn't communicate like complicated uh, information that exists in different time or space and things. That, like there's a lot of like parts of our mind, of our conscious sentient experiences that are incredibly elevated compared to animals. So I'll say that like that's probably the reason why I value the, the human conscious experience a bit differently, but I mean, at the end of the day, that's going to, like I said, well, why would you value that? There's a very common line of vegan argumentation called name the trait, where they'll try to get you to say like, well, what is the one trait a human has that every human has that yeah, animals yeah, yeah. don't have? Yeah. Basically stuff like that. And it gets pretty difficult to, to go through the weeds, but that's, that's essentially kind of where I wind up. But Got it. And I mean, because that was where I was going to ask was, which is like someone who, you know, it, it has a language efficiency or is mentally retarded, which I don't know mm -hmm. what we call that now. Nowadays, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, uh, not that does, word. is not that is maybe that's why people are upset when you use it because you would eat them <laughs> is, <Maybe for sure. laughs> is how do, how do you answer that name that trait, uh, Objection. Yeah, I, don't, I never go by traits. I say that like humans are gifted a priori with like the the faculty for a type of cognition that doesn't exist even in like apes or gorillas. Um, like can't like comprehend language, for instance. Um, some people are gonna fight with like Coco the ape or whatever or the girl. Like n none of that actually is true. If you go well, and, and let me ask you, like uh -huh. the yeah. what is it? The contrapositive. Like, what if an ape could? What if we found an ape that like spoke? With that. Yeah, I think at some point, I think you'd have to make a concession. Like if an alien species came and they seem to possess like similar faculty, mm -hmm. you'd have to say like, okay, well, if we're going to grant humans the right to exist, whatever, we probably should for these creatures as well, right? Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I disagree with a lot of that, but I, I you've, it sounds like you've had these arguments yeah. before. And so we have, we don't need yeah, to. Yeah. The next question is how do I feel about abortion? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Like the, those are the two biggest arguments where people come out of my whole audience like, no. Fuck. Yeah. No, my sense uh, of you, which you obviously don't agree with, is that you are starting from wanting to eat meat and rationalizing backward for like, what are the differences that will grant this that will also uh -huh. make me, which also seems very important to you to remain intellectually consistent. And uh -huh. I, I imagine that I could be wrong that your experience does probably include a lot of intuitive felt connection to animals, because I think that probably like me, you're connected to what appears to be a spectrum of consciousness that you experience them as having and like their capacity to suffer moves you. I would, ex I would guess though. I don't know exactly what goes on in your experience mm -hmm. of, of sure. Yeah, probably I, for most people, right? Like I would say like a person that tortures animals is probably a bad person because there is mm -hmm. something missing mm -hmm. empathetically there that would make them more likely to hurt humans. Right. I think that's, mm -hmm. a, I think that's been debunked, but there used to be like the psychopath triad, it was like yeah, they hurt animals and started hurt animals fires and shit, set fires and pee the bed. But I think that's been yeah, I think that was the psychopath tribe. But I think that's been largely disproven. But I mean, if I saw somebody like torturing an animal, I would think this person's fucked in the head. So yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, would you? Well, then we can wrap on this. Would you feel compassion for the animal? Like, let's assume that person never harms a human ever. Like, they just they just get off on horses, cows, pigs, dogs, cats. Um, I mean, I think you would, but you, I, but you. I mean, like, would I? Um, yeah. I I think I probably would. Yeah, because there's like there's intuitive. Um, it's not an intuition pump. There's like there are things that are gonna ring true for everybody. Like hearing something cry out, it sounds like a baby. It sounds like a cry. Yeah, Seeing yeah. something trying to escape from a negative stimulus. Like these are all gonna be things that's like you feel that right. Even like a robot doing these things, you'd probably sure. have like an empathetic response for it, right? Yeah.
Mm-hmm. Sure. Or GTA five, you know, person on the street when you run over, you're like, Oh God, as I get older, that feels wrong. Listen, I was all the way through GTA <laughs> two, three and four by that point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was just you know. Stevie yeah, from the top down view. Just uh-huh. <laughs> dude, did you, this is so random. I'm sorry. Did you ever play horrible? Did you ever play fucking games growing up? And when your parents were in the room, you became a totally different type of player. So I, mine was in the basement, but yes, I do know what you're talking about. Cause I've go to friends houses sure. and there's, there had a more visible television where it was a very different style of, uh, not just killing every civilian in Grand Theft Auto 2. Yeah. You're yeah. trying to drive through. <laughs> I remember I had a friend come over, um, and his dad, he wanted to know if you should buy Halo for him and his dad mm. like hated blood. Um, and I, dude, I played <laughs> through just- that game. <laughs> I was trying to run behind in melee like every fucking creature I could. And his dad was like, why don't you try shooting him? And I try to like miss the shots, but I think eventually he realized what I was doing. Yeah, because they like blow up blue and his dad was really weird about stuff like that or there'd be all the blue blood for like the elites and everything. But I remember the first like, the first like five minutes I'm like running through the pillar of one and I'm trying to like get behind everything and melee them in the back to kill them. And I'm like, yeah, it's a really fun game. Oh or And God. then there's also that feeling of like, you you're watching like, this deep introspective anime or playing this game, but every time your parents walk in, it just happens to be on like the worst fucking scene. Mm. I remember, um, do you ever watch Cowboy Bebop growing up? No, but this happened to me. I, I know that this happened to me with American Pie. They walked in for, yeah, oh, I, I, I've been here. Yeah, American Pie is a bit edgier, but yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah you'll, I, I, was, I was watching Cowboy Bebop and there's one episode, I think it's the very first one where they're doing like some red-eye drug and at the end, like some lady ends up getting killed because the police like blow their thing up. And I remember I walked, my mom walked in right on that and she's like, is that what they're doing in cartoons these days, Stevie? Just killing women? And I'm like, mom, <laughs> you don't understand. It's sad. Oh, geez. But anyway, yeah, sorry. Yeah. My parents' uh, relationship with me in video games was just one of please wanting me to stop. There was one moment, this is like the crowning achievement of my childhood was- okay. My dad, in a fit of exasperation, I think I was playing Pokemon at the time, um, was like, you got to go outside. I wouldn't go outside. We had a basketball hoop. He said, I will pay you $100 to go outside for 15 minutes. Uh-huh. So I went outside with a Timex for 15 minutes, uh-huh. <laughs> came back inside, collected 100 bucks, bought two more games, was nice. the, the greatest. The greatest what was your favorite uh, Pokemon growing up? Uh, like the actual Pokemon that no, I liked. No, no, like the game, red, I mean, blue. so I, I got red, yeah. When you know you couldn't get both at that point, they were too similar. But I, I was a Bulbasaur red uh, player at that point. Gotcha, gotcha. Was, did you ever get yellow or? Um... I did get yellow, um, and then where I fell off. So to me, Pokemon is one of the most frustrating IPs ever. I think it's one of the most money making franchise of all time. It is okay. such an incredible world to participate in, but their games have been so repetitive and so frustrating like they have not aged with me as a player which is frustrating because the idea of like a sincere open world monster hunting evolution game which a number of kickstarters have tried to do the rcs thing tried to do uh is that's the world that i dreamed of living in and would still love to go back to as an adult but whatever niantic or whoever owns pokemon is just so fucking lazy with their ip and Mm -hmm. uh won't make a good game in my opinion but i don't know if you've continued to play no my last ones were um God, what were they called? It was um, gold and silver, and then yeah, it was right crystal there. was like their Pokemon yellow for those two. So crystal was the last one I played. Um, yeah, dude, you, you were so easy to. T- I remember in in gold and silver when you beat when you cleared. Um, it wasn't the Kanto region; it was whatever the next one was. Mm-hmm. And then once you cleared it, it unlocked the whole old map, and you were like, "Oh my god, how can you fit so much on a <laughs> game? That's cartridge. This <laughs> is huge." And these cartridges I- must have been like, was it even a megabyte? I, it might have been in the form of kilobytes of data on these cartridges like that experience is something i so deeply want to recreate i would i would love to have a game studio or at least recreate a game final fantasy 7 disc 1 midgar 
huge. You know, it's this whole expansive dystopian world. And you remember disc two for me, when you step out into the open world, there was you thought you'd beaten the game. A sense of pos- it was amazing. There was this. Yeah, because when you come out of Midgar the first time, I'm like, this is the end of the game. Like you've yeah. beaten it. I don't even know. Maybe the other CDs are for music, but that's mm-hmm. like just the start. Yeah. yeah. So that experience of just possibility and vastness, like that is that was something. Those are treasured memories of mine mm-hmm. that I that I so want to create and participate in in my adult life and. uh my plan, I mean, I asked you your plan, I'll tell you mine, is, you know, use the money that I've made from Charisma on Command and continue, which I'm interested in, continue mm-hmm. to grow that, but also move far more into storytelling, video game, all that kind of stuff that I was just enamored with as a kid. So mm-hmm. in a way, it's, it's me coming full circle. I was total shy, reclusive nerd, forced myself to be outgoing and make friends, and now I just retreat back to my, <laughs> to my games and my stories. Gotcha, gotcha. Lav and Mr. Girl. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, so my, 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 my audience may not understand you have what you, I think, um, funnily, you know, affectionately referred to as orbiters, which are people with smaller audiences than you that join your streams and add intrigue or drama. And when you're streaming as much as you do, some of the most interesting things, even for me are what becomes drama. Like it's just human interrelational drama. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, I mean, I've heard you sort of talk about this, but like, what is going on? Because you've mentioned this. You said you feel so alive when people are gunning for you. For my audience who doesn't know, this the, the Mr. Girl was like a person who was on your stream often who now is attacking you and calling you uh, all sorts of things because of a falling out that you had. His perspective is that you truly are abusive to your orbiters and whatever. I don't know. You can look up what Mr. Girl thinks if you want to see what Mr. Girl thinks. But there is certainly a falling out. Mm-hmm. Um, what is going on? That, 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 does that really invigorate you to have like what you described as like, people trying to destroy your life because I would retreat from that experience. I would not want that. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, have you ever seen like Death Note? I have not seen Death Note, no. You ever seen the movie, the show Dexter? Yes. Okay, Dexter is like the uh, real life version of Death Note. Like cop mm-hmm. versus cop. Like the mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, like having people like, kind of like fuck you over and like navigating <laughs> those situations and like trying to outsmart somebody that's like trying to ruin you. I don't know, that's all like very, very exciting to me, I guess. I don't know why mm-hmm. it just is. I will say though that I have the benefit and that regardless of what people think about me, I'm generally like a really good person. I don't fuck people over. I pay all of my employees way too much. Um, like I'm, 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 I do a lot for people. Like it's pretty, I've never raped anybody. Like it's very hard to dig up any weird shit about me. I'm pretty open about stuff. Like I obviously I make mistakes. Sometimes I'm mean to people online or whatever, or I'm, I go too hard on people. Like it happens, sure. But um, for the most part, like I'm a pretty good person. So, so I guess it's exciting because I know that like it's not there's not really a risk or maybe that maybe that is it maybe it's a, maybe it's a false excitement because like Mr. Girl just recently did a whole thing where he was going to spend three months doing research for an article saying that I like sexually abused a whole bunch of women which initially was very annoying but it's like there's this is this has never happened so I don't know it's just kind of funny I guess um, and I don't know I guess when I'm in these environments where people are like trying to take me down or destroy me and you kind of like live or die based on how good you can present a case to the public. Like, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. This is it's very exciting. It is exciting. You you're like one admit, of those guys in the scary, squirrel suits. Yeah. That, that like, yeah. you're like Tom Cruise jumping off the thing, just coming within an inch of your, of your reputational death and, <laughs> and living to survive the day feeling yeah. the thrill of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's got it. Times. Yeah. Um, have you learned for yourself and your own perspective, which I mean, I, I will repeat again, Mr. Girl has a different one. Uh, have you learned from your own perspective lessons about who you associate with anything like that? Um, or is that still formulating in your mind or maybe you haven't learned? 
Uh, no, I love it. I enjoy it. I have learned. Mm. I've learned to keep doing it because it's fun. I <laughs> okay. like mentally crazy people. Uh, I like interesting people. Like all of it is super fun and exciting for me. Uh, there are people that will say like, oh, like he's, uh, he's got a bad sense of who people are. He can't read people, blah, blah, blah. The reality is I just like crazy, interesting people. That's just so much fun for me. I like that a lot. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably continue to do it. Yeah. Got it. All right. I think we did it, man. I appreciate you, uh, you taking the time. Yeah. Well, hey, I appreciate it. It's been fun. Um, I looked that thing up because I was just curious. The um, original Nintendo cartridges, oh, Game Boy and Game Boy Color cartridges had 32 megabytes. That's how much they had on them. The way that uh, there was a, an interesting nerd writer video on how they got all of the uh, music into those things, like using the 8-bit, 16-bit sound shit, it's beyond my technical understanding. But yeah, mm-hmm. the, I, I often felt... Uh, the just super i don't know man i don't know if those games were better i think i was just a less discerning uh person when i was what 10 years old but like no. those those are cherished memories for me all of that stuff this is the difference and it's happened with um it's happened with games and it's happened with movies too it's happened with all of our entertainment you could this is a here this is a knock against capitalism if you want mm-hmm. um games back in the day were like wild and crazy because nobody knew like what worked there wasn't like a winning formula yet. People were trying different sorts of battle systems. People had different perspectives, different yeah. graphics. Um, if you have you ever, if you go back and you play Metal Gear Solid One, the controls in that game are fucking horrible. It's <laughs> not a good. It does not play well. It's kind of weird. Sometimes enemies you can't see them. The mm. aiming is incredibly fucking sloppy. It's a really weird game. Or if you played like uh, I remember for Final Fantasy Seven, I don't know why. But in that game, to do confirms, it was the O button instead of yep. the X button. Yeah, yep. and it was like the opposite for like every other game. There's Might have been tactics. Weird... It was tactics, yes. Uh-huh. I know what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah, that was so fucking weird. And I don't know if it was just tactics or seven that did that, but like it was so weird compared to every other game. I was like, why the fuck am I pushing O to confirm or whatever? Um, without the formulas, like, ev- oh, without the formulas and without the online guides, everything that you were jump- you went into, when people were designing these games, they had to design them in a way such that like, you need to be able to figure out what to do next and this is weird and we're going to ask you to like use your brain to figure some shit out and sometimes it's hard. Like that experience was so much different than um, the worst thing that ever happened to gaming, I think. Well, one of the worst things is on-screen checkpoint markers mm-hmm. to where you go from navigating a level and looking at things and moving in ways you need to move and levels are hard to be designed in a conscious way to you'll be playing like uh, Assassin's Creed 27 and you don't even, you're not even looking at you're just like run towards the arrow. Jump oh, the this, HUD. I know. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the following yeah. That, that fucking arrow, man. Oh yeah. my God. And here's the thing. I can't not use it. If it's there, yeah, I, know. Well, I well, have but- no choice. It's because the games are designed around it now. Because if you try to play a game like that, you're like, I'm going to turn this off. I don't know where the fuck to go. It's Mm. everything is pretty, but it's not designed like a video game. It's designed like a like a graphics demo where everything Mm. looks awesome. The environments are cool. The animations are good. The detail is high resolution. Everything's cool. But I don't know where the fuck I'm supposed to go. Turn on the HUD. Follow the fucking arrow. It's like the equivalent of like walking around outside, staring at your feet, like watching your shoes. You walk by and you just like stare the arrow. That type of, we have like, I think we've hyper streamlined a lot of games. Like I want to put in $10 million and I want to get out $30 million. I want to be able to do this. Here's the formula that works. We're going to pump out a fuck ton of these games that do that. And it's just, it's hard to find like big studios that want a hardcore experiment anymore just because the formulas are so well established. In the sure. Final. Same thing with like, there's a, there's a great parallel with music too, where like even like 30 or 40 years ago, 
Um, especially with like, you know, a lot of grunge music, a lot of rock music. It's like a bunch of dudes in studios that are like playing guitars. And I think this sounds cool. And I want to try that and that. And they find friends and they play in fucking garages and guitar studios. And now it's like some execs are like, this girl who's 12 years old has an amazing voice. We're going to connect her to these four sound engineers. We're going to grab this songwriter from Sweden. We're going to hook them up here and we're going to start pumping out songs. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I'm not saying it's bad. It's very, very, very different. And some yeah. of the magic I think is lost. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you're making one of the games. I took about 10 years off of gaming because I was trying to be a cool outgoing guy. But when I came mm-hmm. back, the one that got me in was Breath of the Wild. And as I think back to what that experience was like, it was that sense of exploration reignited. Have you played Breath of the Wild? I haven't because the idea of an open world Zelda game sounded really bad to it's me. But fucking is it good? Great. So the exploration okay. experience is there's no markers. Like the way mm-hmm. that you have to, you're like looking around this giant open world thing. They've got a couple things that sort of orient you in the world, but this sense of you can go anywhere. The world is huge, and you're not being shoehorned was was magical to, for, okay, for me okay. to get back into. Another recommendation: Have you played the Divinity Original Sin games, which are turn-based? Um, I played Divinity Original Sin too. Yes. Yeah, that one's great. Love that okay. one. Better. I have than a one. problem where when I play games, uh, this is my autism again. I have to play it on the most difficult fucking setting every oh, fucking God. time. <laughs> and yeah, on Divinity Original Sin too, I actually fun. never made it out of chapter one because there's a big fight at the end yeah. in like a room, and the yeah, the guy you gotta be perfect. Me you gotta be yeah, perfect for that. Yeah, me. I my, uh, I never did that mode, but but. <laughs> dabbled with it for a second and it was just like oh this is fucking this is this is doing math i don't i don't want to do this i want to play a game Mm -hmm. um but dude awesome i appreciate you taking the time you got streaming going on for the rest of the day i imagine correct yep i'm hopefully beating that factorial game tonight so jesus christ yeah all right steven destiny thank you so much where can people find you i'm sure the algorithm will show them your stuff but where should they check you out yeah, youtube.com slash destiny and instagram.com slash destiny. And cool. I think if you look for destiny debates on TikTok, you'll find a bunch of stuff there too. So, yeah. Beautiful. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.